This episode contains a frequent popping noise, which we could not eliminate from the recording. So think of it like you're listening to horror movie podcast playing on a vinyl record. Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 93. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my lone wolf co-host tonight is... Wolfman Josh. Jay, we're sort of a club, like a loser's club. (laughs) You could say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Welcome, sir. Thank you for being here, Wolfman Josh. This sure beats solo casting. I'll say that much. (laughs) But uh, actually, we will be joined by um, a couple of people later on tonight. I mean, we got a brief little stint with Dr. Shock. He's going to stop by briefly in the episode. And we're also going to be joined by um, a brand new special guest. This is kind of a weird, wacky Frankensteinian episode. We're going to be discussing uh, quite a few things. We're going to be teasing an upcoming Killer Clowns episode that's going to come out in September, Josh. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a big deal. And what we thought we would do is do a little bit of like teaser build up and kind of like wet people's appetite for that, hopefully. (laughs) So with some clown coverage tonight. And we're also going to talk some conspiracy theories. What do you think about that? Sounds interesting, Jay. Yeah. Well, don't count on it. It probably won't be. (laughs) People will probably be mad and hate this episode. But, you know, here's what I'm going to do to show them that we're serious, dead serious about horror movies. Let's move right now into our feature review of Clown. He's going to miss the clown. There's a little bit of a goof up. There's no clown coming. Who double books a clown? I thought you had a backup. Everything's going to be fine. Perfect. Mr. Clown! Dad, hurry, I'm gonna be late! I physically cannot get it off. It's suffocating. One, two. Okay, Josh, do you want to start this off? You betcha. Clown is a 2014 film originally when it premiered at film festivals, but Jay, you might call it a 2016 film because that's the first time it was available to wide audiences. I sure do. Yes, sir. I do. This one's available for a 399 digital rental on Amazon amongst other places. And this is a Eli Roth produced John Watts directed film uh, that is about a father who puts on a clown costume to help out last minute at his son's birthday party and then finds that he cannot take it off. That's basically the shortest version of the premise I can give. And we can decide how deep we want to get into it as it goes. But, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the last episode for anyone who missed that this started out as a short film, one of those fake trailers and John Watts had made this trailer with that basic concept. And really I've seen the short, that's about all it is. And it, It's not much more there, but in the trailer he put from Master of Horror Eli Roth or something to that effect. So Eli Roth eventually saw this and thought, you know what, I'm going to help this guy out. And he got the film set up and said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to let you make the film you want to make. And he made a very interesting film here. 
And um, it took a little while for it to get out, so much so that John Watts made his second film, uh, Cop Car with Kevin Bacon, in between the making of Clown and the release of Clown. And we've already seen that film uh, mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. But um, but this film eventually did get out to an audience, and I'm, I'm surprised they didn't go for a larger audience now having seen the movie because I think it's pretty deftly put together, and it's not – kind of the cheap exploitation film I had expected going in. It, it is disturbing. And then there are some laughs and it has the schlock value you might hope for, I think a lot of the time, but it's actually, it, it operates as kind of an indie film as well. It's shot that way. The acting um, is taken very seriously. And I think uh, the main actor, Andy powers, who plays the dad, Kent is really strong in this movie. Yes. Yes surprisingly so in fact because as the film opens you're like i don't i don't know about this guy you know you like at least for me (laughs) it's like yeah he plays a great you know typical dorky dad not dorky dad but just your typical dad character yeah and and then you're like okay i can't see this going very far with this guy right But, but it does it does actually and uh josh I am really surprised by this film. I heard a lot of like rave reviews. I heard a ton of buildup on this. And I actually, for whatever reason, I was able to somehow temper my expectations because even though I think clowns are creepy and we're going to be talking about this a lot more in September, you know, I, I respect the whole scary clown idea. I just, I don't. I just never expect a whole lot from a clown movie. You know what I mean? It's like a mm-hmm. like a evil kid movie. Because, like, you know what? I'm not afraid of evil kids because, as the listeners know, I can beat up kids. And because um, I'm an orange belt in jiu-jitsu. No, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> But the other side of it is, like, you know, the, the evil doll movies. The same thing with clowns. I personally don't find clowns scary. And uh, clowns are like funny and happy things to me. So it is really weird in my mind personally to see clowns like, you know, in a scary context. But this film, as you have said, I think you described it very well. There is something special about it. And I think in the same way, there's something special about Trick or Treat. I mean, when people talk about that film, it's almost like it's impossible for them not to say it's fun. Like the mm. the most frequent adjective that people use when describing trick or treat is it's fun, and I'd say um, even though this thing does get dark, I also think it's fun. I think it's interesting you brought up trick or treat because one of the films I thought of as a comparison was actually Krampus from the same director. So mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Krampus. Yeah, I I thought of that one too, and I actually prefer this um a lot more over krampus but it is kind of in the same i I don't know what would we call i'm always wanting to classify things i mean what do you call this kind of do you know what i'm trying to say it's hard to pinpoint but there's something about it that's kind of silly kind of kooky yeah kind of i mean for me the thing that i connect to it on is that it is dealing with a mythological creature um and to me, the films that I thought of, and here's, uh, here are others that you will think this is better than, although I, I might disagree with you, 
Uh, Rare Exports is a film that I thought of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Troll Hunter is a film that I thought of. Right. And this is a little more hardcore horror than any of those films. Yes. But it's not totally hardcore. And it feels kind of in that realm of we're dealing with something mythical. It has almost a fantasy element to it. And I wonder if maybe you are afraid of clown films because there's a huge potential for humor yes. with a clown. Yes. And that might be a turnoff for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but I think a film like Krampus and, you know, Trick or Treat and, and those I mentioned, they are able to temper the humor with some actual scares. And I think this movie has that too. And it's also just very grounded despite being about a clown. It feels like it's in a reality, which is a, 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 kind of a feat actually. Well, do you, okay. So do you remember what, like, you remember how Christopher Nolan took Batman and, and went the dark Knight route with it, you know, like yeah. the, and it, it was like a darker, more set in reality. And then like, I, I heard people talk about, Okay, well, what if, um, okay, uh, sorry, his name is escaping me. The director of The Wrestler. <laughs> Darren Aronofsky. Yes, thank you. What if Darren Aronofsky um, did a Batman? What would that look like, okay? Well, if you had a clown movie where it was like a Darren Aronofsky approach to an <laughs> evil clown, and I just mean, I mean, probably... Something like we're going to get in 31, but not quite that over the, that's a little bit over the top to me, but, um, from the trailer at least, but, but what if they took a, just a really gritty, realistic, like a guy's in a clown suit, he kind of flips out and loses his mind and he starts hacking up people, you know? Yeah. That, that's I mean, the isn't kind of, that Gacy? <laughs> what did you say? Yes. Isn't that what Gacy is? Yeah, precisely. I mean, something like that, I think, can be scary. But when you have, um, as you said, these kind of mythological elements, I mean, there are, and we'll talk about, I see it's really tricky because we're just trying to tease clown stuff tonight because we want to save a lot of this for our clown episode. But, like, do you remember how, like, Killer Clowns from Outer Space incorporates um you know, clown-related paraphernalia and lore into mm-hmm. into the film itself. Well, this does a little bit of that as well. It it's got inc- its own lore. Yeah, it's got its own lore, and it incorporates those things. And and to me, that's like a, a little bit like more on the fantasy line than my typical taste and preference. And I'm not criticizing it because it's done very well here in this film, but it, it's less realistic to me. Yeah, I mean, I liked the stuff that just felt more grounded as he realizes this suit may not, he may not be able to take it off. And yeah, it does have almost like a Sam Raimi element of humor, like dark humor in those moments still. Yes, yes. But, um, but it still manages to feel real to some extent where he's trying to get the clown nose off is a very painful scene, uh, pun intended. And, um, (laughs) You know, the clown wig trying to get that off and the suit, especially trying to get that off. Uh, Those are interesting scenes and they work, um, I think, both at a kind of slightly comedic level, but also surprises in the grounded level. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think that um, in this film, like the Andy Powers, you know, the actor, I think that he does a good job with, even though it's kind of funny, his reactions 
he reacts exactly like I think a real person would react. He, he's he's mm-hmm. got a lot of like WTF like type. Like what the what is going on right now? Like this is so weird. You know, you know he kind of acts like that, and I I really bought that. So that did add to the realism as well. But um, uh, so I'm gonna kind of flip you out here. Maybe I actually had um kind of an I don't want to say intimate, but I did have, I had a really strong reaction to this movie, and I think mm. that gave a lot of its power to me. Um, and so. Here's another little moment where Jay's going to probably share too much and make it awkward on horror movie podcasts. So here comes. These are my favorite segments. So. We um, still need to come up with a music cue for this. But. Yeah, yeah. So here, here it is. If people, if you're going to get uncomfortable, people, this will be the moment in the episode. Um, so I just turned forty, right? It was just my birthday, and um, happy birthday. Well, thank you, thank you. Yes, and. I personally believe I tell people this all the time. I've been having midlife crises since I was about 17 years old. Like, you know, (laughs) I I mean, I've had like lots of them. So it's not like I'm bashful about saying midlife crises. I don't think that I'm having one at this current moment, but tomorrow I may be. But I am saying the premise of this film, you've got a dad and he wants to please his kids. He puts on this clown suit. And as Josh has described, he cannot take it off. And it's very disturbing to him. It's very troubling to him. And um, because of this and because of him not being able to take it off, he's not getting to um, spend the same kind of quality time with his son or with his wife. Well, this was really powerful to me because like, I relate to this because now that I'm aging and changing, I now weigh 50 more pounds than I used to weigh when I first got married and I'm just not as spry as I used to be. And so it's a little more difficult for me to like play with my kids like I used to, right? Mm. And this guy, you know, he starts having this transformation where he's not as attractive. He's not as sleek and sexy and stuff. So just like he can't take off his clown suit, which makes him look worse, I can't take off the extra weight, which makes me look worse. So now when I'm trying to do things, especially athletic things, since I'm a heavier guy now, I feel like a clown, just like this character. And he does have these appetites, which I won't go into, but me as like middle-aged guy, I have these appetites like for food and sugar and Coca-Cola and stuff like that. It's crazy. And it all started with like a birthday party in this film. It starts with a birthday party. And with me, it started with you know, my birthdays or aging. And so, Josh, it kind of blew my mind how much I saw myself in this clown character. Wow, Jay, that's crazy. I mean, (laughs) the first thing I'll say about it is you kind of made the movie look bad there because I don't think the movie succeeds on the level you're uh, connecting with it on. And I think had it gone for a little bit more of that, it would have been even more powerful, probably much more powerful for me as an experience because I don't think the film... Uh, capitalizes on what you're expressing totally. But it is interesting. That is That stuff is in there to some degree. I think it's just, for me, it's a little more surface level, but I appreciate mm-hmm. your um, personal experience with that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you're, and you're exactly right. I mean, the film isn't as explicit with it as I was, but if, if you are, and I imagine that maybe some of our listeners find themselves in the same boat, middle-aged, not as not as spry and as 
athletic as you once were and you know you're given to temptations of you know of the flesh food and drink yeah of the flesh and you're just not the same man or woman that you used to be and it's you know it's in this film you can feel it and relate to it at least i did and i thought it was pretty freaky jay i just want you to know you can take off the makeup in real life. So. <laughs> I know. It could take let's off do the- it, Jay. Let's, get, let's do it. <laughs> take off the clown suit. Well, yeah. yes, that, that is my goal. I'm working at it. So, right. yeah, it's exciting. But Don't anyway. Don't give up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Th- thank you all for listening to that. But, you know, that's what the cinema is, Josh, right? You have these experiences and you connect with it. Or, you know, you have these powerful things that happen, these little epiphanies. And that's that's really, I think horror is very good at bringing about the things that scare us in ourselves or about our own lives. It's very good at that. And I think that's one of the reasons why this film's so successful. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I, um, I'm a big fan of John Watts, as I mentioned before. I like his film Cop Car. And it was interesting seeing him do something a little more genre exploitative than Cop Car was. Um, I, I'm curious if this is really the type of film he would like to make or if Cop Car is more his speed. I kind of imagined after I saw this, like, oh, maybe he just made that trailer because he thought it was a funny idea. And then Eli Roth calls you. Then you have to make it, even though right. <laughs> this might not be his type of film. Right. Um, like, Cop Car felt like a passion project. This was still very good, but I don't think um, there, you know, it is low budget and I could feel the budget at times um, despite it looking very nice for the most part. And the makeup team, I think does a really great job here and wardrobe, the CGI that's in it. I don't love. And I think the writing is a little weak at times. It rings false to me um, kind of for like the wife husband relationship and things like that. Don't didn't quite work for me, but um, but I did enjoy it for the most part, and I'm just debating. I have a way to totally ruin this movie for you and for our, our listeners, <laughs> and I was I was excited to tell you about it, but now I don't want to do it because you've had such a, such a great personal connection with it. I'm debating if this is worth doing or not. Well, I am up for it because I love your insights on films and stuff, but I wonder, so how are we going to navigate this for the listeners who haven't seen it? What like how can you prep them for what's to to come? It's not even a spoiler. It's just it's just looking at the premise in a slightly different way. Uh, okay, well let's do it. Let's bring it on. I'm ready. Okay, so I was talking to Carl Cedarholm, who we've had on the show in our um, H.P. Lovecraft episode. He's kind of a Stephen King expert, and so when we were talking about possibly having this be our clown episode, I wanted to get some of his insights on Stephen King's it. And hopefully we will have him on the show when we eventually do do a creepy clown episode um, because he has a wealth of knowledge around uh, Stephen King and, and that could be great to have him on. But he mentioned he had seen Clown and he had a great little thought about it that I thought was very perceptive and totally ruined the movie for me, which is <laughs> this is essentially it's just the Santa Claus, but with a killer clown. And that's totally what this is. This is the Santa Claus. <laughs> All, all the Santa Claus with with Tim Allen. Yes, that movie. Exactly. He puts on the Santa suit <laughs> and then slowly starts turning into Santa Claus. And by the end of the movie, he's just Santa Claus. And he's it's you know, it's affecting him, his relationship with his child and his ex-wife. And um, you know, he's got all these cravings. 
and uh, wow. he's, he's living in this costume, and that's totally <laughs> what this movie is. I kind of like that, actually. I, I I could see why that might ruin it for some people, but I think that's kind of cool, and I like it a lot better here. You know, I yeah, like and I it. would actually say for those, you know, I know we have aspiring and maybe working screenwriters out there in our audience. I think this is a great idea to take a concept that works. Like the Santa Claus, I mean, they made three of those movies at least, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. the first film is actually decent, like it's watchable. Yeah. Um, take a concept that we know works, and then just apply horror to it, and you can uh, you can make your living that way. That that's a great way to make a buck. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I mean, the Santa Claus concept that film is not a horror film, but that is scary if you think about it. I mean, that's freaky. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I love about this movie and I really appreciate is that I like when something is happening to a person in a horror movie. And this is usually done badly, but I like it when it works. Something is happening to a person and nobody really believes the person and and the person kind of looks crazy. Well, that's a really effective and and kind of powerful element of this film because one of the most horrifying aspects to me would be you're having this horrific supernatural thing happening to you and you can't get anybody to believe you because the farther you go, I mean, with every passing moment and the more things that happen, you just look more and more crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's that's quite frightening to me. But But let's talk about the costume. You mentioned that the makeup team did a good job and I agree, but... Initially, the clown costume, I, I don't know that I loved it initially. Like, like his. It I'm, took some time to grow on me. There's a moment when he goes to a costume shop and he's like trying to track down who the maker of the costume might be. Mm-hmm. Where I realized, oh, this actually is a really good costume. And that was the first scene where I felt that way. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I was kind of like. I, I was really into it. But yeah, at first I wasn't really feeling it either. Yeah, it does grow on you. And I think, you know, maybe it's because the costume is a little bit muted or, or toned down. And I think that's kind of, you know, I, I they want it to be creepy because it might just be like ginger dead man or something super silly if you've got this really bright bozo the clown type look. I, I don't know. I just, I wondered about that. Um, Something that occurred to me while watching this film, Josh, is this is kind of a reverse superhero film. It's like an anti-hero film in in a way. Not the traditional anti-hero, but what I mean by reverse is this guy gets these, for lack of a better word, powers. And they're not really powers. He's just, as you say, turning into a clown. It, um, But it's negative. It's really yeah. bad. And, and I mean, it, it's not as extreme as the fly, but that might be another kind of way of looking at it. Like his yes, yes. body is changing. It has a body horror element to it. Oh, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, I mean, I think there are some pretty strong moments in this, like as far as like, you know, the, the actual horror and violence. I, I mean, it, it's funny because sometimes the film seems really tame and almost mild, and I'm like, well, this is, Eli Roth produced this? You know, like, but then other times, it seems like, okay, they're going for it. And I just wondered about that. Why do you think 
that it's kind of inconsistent like that because it's not like it steadily goes darker. It kind of like weaves back and forth across the line. I mean, that might be just an experience on the filmmaker's part being his first film. Um, But I don't think it's bad. I don't think it, I think it works. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so, and, and I guess, I mean, one could argue that it has to do with him, you know, resisting the change, you know, resisting, what he's becoming. So I guess so. I think that's interesting. Now there, I, I can't talk. I don't want to go into spoilers on this, but um, there is a, a setting at the end. There's something in particular and we'll just see like people, this is for people who have seen it and for Josh, there's something at the end and I'll say it's colorful, multicolored, like toward the end where like, Everybody kind of has some reluctant feelings about this in real life, right? <laughs> right. And uh, and they they incorporated it in this movie, and I loved that that fact. Like, um, and I'll just if you I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, Josh, but I'll, I'll yeah, I know what you're talking okay. about. Okay, I just want to make sure. I'm like, oh, okay, that's brilliant that they incorporated that because like. You know, people, at least I've always been kind of leery about about those things. And I think that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and they do interesting. I mean, they work with color in kind of an interesting way throughout the film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some spatter at some point that I thought was really cool. If you remember that. Oh, yeah, but I didn't know how I felt about that. I didn't know if I didn't like that or I did like that. I don't... I don't know. I, I can see why you wouldn't, because it could be parodied in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but I loved it. I thought it was. I thought it was hilarious and brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's just like okay, why? Why would that spatter be that color? <laughs> but the, or those colors? I don't know. I just thought that was kind of bizarre. There is a let's just call it a, a found footage moment where we're we're seeing some footage that is found. <laughs> And I honestly, I think that's the scariest part of the film. Really, that's one of my least favorite parts of the film. Uh, that's so interesting, really. Okay, yeah. Are you talking about with the actual video camera? Yeah, like we're we're watching something from the past that was filmed in the past. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think the way that it's staged is cool. Like, there's a there's a good scare in the staging of that scene. Mm-hmm. But actually, on camera, that's what I was referring to to the bad CGI. I didn't like. Uh, the way that looked. Yeah, I, I found it a little bit unsettling. Um, and I, I don't know why it kind of got to me, but it, it really did. So uh, I get you. I get you. Um, so I thought there was there was a neat use of a business in this film. <laughs> and I know it sounds like we're just kind of, uh, I'm just picking out things to appreciate or nitpick. But in this, in this case, um, I'm certain that they didn't have approval from the business. Like, like, like they mentioned the business earlier in the film, and then they didn't have approval to like show their sign or their logo. But they right. sh- they show it in the reflection of a windshield, and it's like backwards and only partially shown. But I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Just to work it in, you know, that was cool. Yeah, that was really funny. <clears throat> so, do you think people are gonna like this? Wolfman Josh, I mean, how do you think the horror community, generally speaking, do you think this is going to be favored? Because, um, like, for example, I'm, I'm looking at, 
IMDb so far, and I don't know if like we're one of the last people who've seen this by now, but it's 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 at a five point six out of ten on IMDb, and that's out of like eleven thousand users. But I I think it's way more worthy than that. But I mean, well, where are you coming in on your rating? Let's go into ratings. Well, yeah, uh, just before I do, I I know that this was released in the UK and some of our listeners had even purchased the UK Blu-ray of this already, like, you know, years ago or whatever. So um, I know some people in the world have seen it, but probably for most US uh, viewers, this is the first time they'll have a chance to see it. It was number one on iTunes the day it was released or the week it was released, which was uh, around the time we were recording our last episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know how will, will audiences feel. I think people who have high expectations may be disappointed mm-hmm. and those who come with low expectations may be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so the 5.6 doesn't necessarily surprise me in that regard. I would just say for me, it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. And so, um, I I'd probably give it a six, honestly, uh, but I think it's highly watchable. And I think if you were really into clowns, this could be a, one of your favorite films because it's a great, you know, you know, we kind of talked about this one with exists being a great Bigfoot movie. This is one of the better clown movies I've ever seen. You know, I think it still suffers from being the director's first film. I think there's a little bit of weak writing and editing uh, at times, uh, but it, it mostly looks good. The performances are mostly good. I, I just think for me, what's holding it back is just depth of the concept. Like it doesn't, it, it's a great idea. It's like one of those ideas that's a brilliant premise. And I think there's more to it than just the short film, because I think the feature brings a lot more to this than the short film does. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if there's enough there to really get me excited about it at 90 minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, uh, it- and I think maybe I have a reason for that because um, do you remember? Uh, I'm sure you do. Let's see, what was that film called? Uh, Contracted, right? From 2013. Um, yeah, that also was not one of my favorites. Yeah, you did not like that, and I think, and I loved it actually. And and I think this has some, this shares some things with Contracted as well because. In contracted, you know, this young girl contracts what she believes is a sexually transmitted disease, but it's actually something much worse. And as the film progresses, her body is falling apart and becoming more and more disgusting and gross. And um, <clears throat> there's this real transition happening. Well, that film, I loved like the last, I mean, I don't even know if it was like a whole minute, but like at the end of the film, you know, it's rock and roll, like as Carl would say, it's like briefly. And I'm like, man, I would have loved to have more of that, but earlier in the film. And I think that they're trying so hard in this movie to make a believable transition, which I respect, but I think it's almost, it's a little too little, too late kind of thing. I wish, I wish we would had it get more extreme earlier in the film. Because mm-hmm. yeah, th- it's a bit of a slow burn there. Yeah, but not terrible. So, so when you say it's a six out of ten, is that just a rental or a, like what do you say on that? Yeah, I mean, I think if this concept interests you, it's definitely a high priority rental. I mean, I think again, I think this is probably one of the better clown films. There aren't a lot of great clown films. 
So mm-hmm. um, that's something I think we struggled with talking about what films might be in our creepy clown episode. Cause I think it's an interesting concept as a theme to discuss, but what are the great movies in the subgenre? <laughs> I don't know. Um, this is a good one. This is a great entry. So uh, if you're interested in creepy clowns, this is one to definitely check out. You might even want to own it in that case. I think for most people, it's probably just a rental though. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I actually, I think I would probably be exactly at the same rating with you if I hadn't had that that very personal type of relation to this to this film, like where I really related to the character on a weird way. I, w- I probably would have been at a six too, but because of that experience, which probably nobody else will have, for me it's a seven out of ten, and I call it a strong rental. I definitely think it's worth checking out. And it's refreshing to have something that's different from the usual ghost movie in the theaters, right? So so Josh says it's a six, I say it's a seven, and we both think you should definitely check it out. Okay, Josh, so um, that's our review of Clown, and I know that you wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the new It movie. Tell us all about this. Yeah, I mean, I just have been really excited about this new version of It. It's being directed by Andy Muschietti, or I'm sorry, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. Uh, Andre is what his actual name is, but he goes by Andy Muschietti, who was the director of Mama, if people are aware of that film. Okay, sorry. Kerry Fukunaga was actually supposed to be the director of this and worked on it for three years and wrote the script and... and, uh, was heavily involved with this movie. They were going to make two films for $32 million and it was going to be a two-parter of Stephen King's it. And, um, he ended up getting in a fight with the studio because they wanted something a little more archetypal from their horror. And he wanted to have something a little deeper, you know, Kerry Fukunaga people will know from the beloved first season of true detective. He's a talented guy. And I was really looking forward to what he was going to come up with with it and reading his comments online about why he left the film. Uh, there's a great article in Variety called uh, Carrie Fukunaga Offers New Details on Why the It Remake Fell Apart. That's worth checking out if you want to know more about what his vision for it was. And he was going to have actor Will Poulter probably best known for me from son of Rambo, but is in like where the Millers and stuff and is just a talented young actor. He was going to play Pennywise in the film, which although I prefer Tim Curry, I thought Will Will Poulter is a great choice. Well, now um, Andy Muschietti is directing the film and he has his own Pennywise. And that is Bill Skarsgård, who is a, Stellan Skarsgård's son mm, okay. is going to be in it. And um, as Pennywise, and they released the photo today as we're recording this. So I thought I'd uh, send that over to you and see what you thought. But while I, while I get that ready, what has been your experience briefly? Cause again, we might cover this on killer clowns with it. And are you interested in this remake and in Pennywise? Well, I'm definitely interested in, and um, I think it is very, very cool. Now, it's been a long time since I've seen that. And we actually, we had talked about trying to work it in, but there was no way I could watch that giant miniseries in time for our recording tonight. But the thing is, even though, and I love Tim Curry, of course, it seems like with almost all of the Stephen King films, especially 
they all have this TV quality. And yes, as you've made fun of me before, <laughs> it was TV. It was, right. <laughs> I mean, that was, it was a TV thing. And it's, but my, my argument now, I mean, things like True Detective and The Wire, things like that, and even Breaking Bad, they've kind of ruined me where, where TV series have become so cinematic in and of themselves. I mean, they're, they're good. So I, I'm actually excited about getting an update on this. Um, I see, I just wonder like what the length is going to be because I, I see. Well, it's still going to be two films. It, they're, so they're still going to do that. Okay. Yeah. And it's tricky because I don't know if, if you remember much about it, but you know, there is a story of adults and there are the story of the children. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it is tricky to put all of that content into one film. So yeah, they've decided to do it as, as a two parter and they, apparently they rewrote the scripts, uh, and when the new director came on, because um, Kerry Fuganaga had put a lot of his own personal life experiences into that, as well as his co-writer, and they were upset at the idea that they weren't going to get to make the movie, but their you know personal childhood experiences were going to be in the movie. So mm, okay. it'll be interesting to see what we get. I think we're going to get more of a hardcore horror film to be honest with them off it because they were talking about how their film was character driven and it was more uh, about more than just Pennywise. And that's the, you know, that's the negative feedback they were getting from the studio. So even though I personally am probably more interested in the Carrie Fukunaga version, I'm guessing more horror fans are going to be excited about this new version. I just think Stephen King fans uh, may be disappointed in this in a different way than they were disappointed in the miniseries. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, that's a gigantic book, right? It's a big story. Yeah, that's that's going to be difficult to adapt to film, obviously. I mean, I think yeah. we've we've established that and have seen it now. But, uh, like, with this It here, the so it's slated for 2017, and it's like a September release as of That's now, correct. 2017. And, and as of today, when we're recording, they started they started filming two days ago. Yeah. So the director has put a few images out on his Instagram that people were buzzing about, and that's why this was news. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he put out like, "Here's my director's chair," and it says "it" on the back, and people got excited. And then he put a shot of balloons out there, and so everybody was buzzing. And then today, yeah, they released the image, which I just sent you. Did mm-hmm. you take a look at it? Yeah, I, I did, and um, I'm I'm liking it. I'm uh, I'm so far so good. I guess. I mean, I mean it looks I, evil. Yeah, I don't know that it looks any scarier than the cover of any other bad clown movie, though. And I think that's the thing I'm having trouble with is I'm having a hard time imagining a better Pennywise than Tim Curry. Right. And he is so unsettling in in some of the scenes in that film. And some scenes he's just doing typical clown stuff and and even typical Tim Curry stuff. But there are a couple scenes where he is terrifying. Yes. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see how they're going to approach it with this one. Well, and this, this image that you sent me here, it almost looks like, I mean, this from entertainment weekly, it, it almost looks like concept art more than anything. Just, just, just the concept. Yeah. Well, they released a concept earlier um, that was like a sketch and this is actually the actor in the makeup. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm impressed. Cause it looks, it looks like it's like some kind of just like, you know, digital image of it, but 
The other good thing I think this remake has going for it is it has some interesting young actors. I think casting young actors is so hard, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the main characters is going to be Owen Teague, which I don't know if you've seen Netflix's uh, series Bloodline yet, but he is a oh. like incredible young actor. He's so so good and so versatile. And you love Bloodline, don't you? I really I've- enjoyed the first season um, more than the second, but yeah, it's it's really good. Um, Jaden Lieberher, which I'm not exactly how I should have pronounced his name, but he was the little boy in Midnight Special, which you guys reviewed on Movie Podcast Weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake Dylan Grazier from Tales of Halloween, and Wyatt Olaf, who was uh, the young Peter Quill in Guardians of the Galaxy. And I think these are all really strong young actors, so it could be good. It could be a great team of uh, losers club there. So, well, and and the thing is, when you get good casting like that they could either have a strong casting director and yay for the film or it could mean that you've got a good captain at the helm of this ship right yeah yeah exactly so so yeah i mean we we can be hopeful and from what i'm seeing in this art but i mean it's like wow that this is over a year away i have a hard time getting excited about films that are that far out I mean, yes. I, I am excited like you, but I'm just saying that, man, it seems like forever we got to wait for this. Yeah. I mean, it's been news because the switch over in directors and Carrie Fukunaga is such an acclaimed director right now because of true detective. But I think the mama guy is great, too. And I think this could be really good. So I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to it. Me and, too. you know, it's only a year away, and it's not a Halloween day release, which I know you're a big fan of, but <laughs> it's at least a Halloween season release, which I think is great. There you go. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Okay, so that's our uh, discussion of the new It movie. Let us know your thoughts if you're hopeful and you think it's looking good so far, but um, we'll cross our fingers, won't we, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the other things we were talking about covering in our creepy clowns episode is maybe focusing around a feature review of Rob Zombie's upcoming 31, which I'm looking forward to reviewing with you guys. But Mm -hmm. um, Kagan, who was on the last episode was so great. I thought, let's check in with Kagan because I know he saw, uh, well, first of all, he saw Carnage Park at Sundance, but he also saw 31 at Sundance. And so Mm -hmm. I thought it might be cool to do a little preview since we were already talking about clowns anyway get Kagan's thoughts on it. And then, um, you know, we'll do the full review in September. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds good. So thanks for recording that. So what we're going to do, bring you here is uh, Kagan's sneak preview of Rob Zombies 31. All right. In this point of the show, we are joined by a very special guest, Kagan Breitenbach, otherwise known as listener Kagan from Salt Lake city in the past. Kagan, welcome back to Horror Movie Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. So you were a guest with Jay. You guys watched The Shallows together previously, which, as I hear, went swimmingly, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it was it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, Jay and I had a good time uh, seeing the movie and talking afterwards. We've spoken a little bit about movie scores. You yourself are a composer, and I think mm-hmm. that's interesting. And what some of our listeners may or may not know is that you are yourself a composer, and I have heard your uh, Quartet Macabre performance that you did. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background as a composer and uh, and your the Quartet Macabre as well? Sure. Uh, so I've been working as a professional 
composer in the realm of films and video game underscore for uh, maybe like six years now. I've worked on several feature films and short films as well as as well as some video games. But I try to work as much as I possibly can in the realm of documentary and horror film. Horror films, I haven't actually had a ton of work in them, but it's they're my favorite when I can get them. So going into Quartet Macabre with that, I've been uh, one of my favorite ensembles to write for is the String Quartet. Uh, I I really love string music. I'm not a string player. I'm a pianist, but uh, I just love string music. And so last year I got this idea to do a concert of all the well, all my favorite iconic horror film scores and had them played uh, by String Quartet custom arrangements that I had written. And while the string quartet was playing, there were, um, there were scenes from these movies projected in the theater behind the string quartet players. And so we did stuff like, uh, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Suspiria, Ghostbusters, you know, just to name a few, I think there are about 15 pieces. It's awesome. Yeah. And I've heard the live tracks online on your website and I really enjoyed listening to just that presentation. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So um, that's a little bit about your background, and hopefully we'll have you on the show again when we talk movie music. That could be a lot of fun. But the reason I wanted to have you on the show today for our Creepy Clowns discussion was that you had seen Rob Zombie's 31 at Sundance. And on the last episode, Jay and I talked a bit about the trailer, and I think even previously on the show we discussed whether or not this could be a prequel to House of a Thousand Corpses, whether or not the main character in this film was, in fact, a young Captain Spaulding, and and we weren't sure. Uh, So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that and see how creepy clowns play into 31, if there are uh, 31 clowns getting out of a a clown car or what exactly (laughs) is happening here. But uh, the synopsis from IMDb simply says, five carnival workers are kidnapped and held hostage, uh, in a hell-like compound where they are forced to participate in a violent game. So I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more. No spoilers uh-huh. for Rob Zombie's 31. Um, your main villains in this movie are actually, it's not 31 clowns. You have six um, different clowns, and their names are, let's see, I have them written down here. You have Schizohead, Psychohead, Sickhead, Sexhead, Doomhead, and Deathhead. And this movie definitely is in a different universe, uh, well, in a different world than, uh, you know, House of the Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. It's a little bit more fantastic, I think, but it's still set in that gritty 70s grindhouse style. And okay. it's, you know, that's actually one of the best things about it is that I think um, I, I shared that a position with you about Rob Zombie is that I have a cautious optimism about him because I, f- I find him to be such a likable guy. Like I love his character. I love his personality and uh, I actually like his music quite a bit too. And there's, there's uh, undeniably a level of artistry with his filmmaking that I've seen that might not quite be there yet. Um, <laughs> But uh, can I actually share a quote from uh, the Sundance Q&A? Absolutely. It might be a, it, yeah, and tell us a little bit about <laughs> your experience seeing this at Sundance. Okay, so uh, I wasn't actually at the premiere that was in Park City. I was at um, the premiere in Salt Lake. Yeah, I'll share. I want to share this quote from the Q&A first, and then I'll tell about my actual experience. But um, so <laughs> the first, the very first question at the Q&A at Sundance in Park City to Rob Zombie and uh, – I'm guessing Jay's editing this so he can get ready with his beeper. 
the question was, why in the sweet name of baby does the Nazi midget clown speak in Spanish? <laughs> and I love that question because it like sums up basically my thoughts about 31 is like it has all these bizarre ideas and none of them really make a lot of sense. But at the same time, it's kind of like fun. And uh, <laughs> there really is a Nazi and sorry to use the word midget because I know, it, but uh, there, it's a four foot six inch tall actor who's dressed up as a Nazi who's yelling in Spanish and he's one of the clowns. So it sounds like it's got a little <laughs> bit of the super beast Rob Zombie in there as well, but okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. With my Sundance experience experience, it was also kind of strange because it was at the Salt Lake city library, which is kind of a weird place to see a Rob Zombie movie. Uh, <laughs> mo- <laughs> most, <laughs> well, because you're like, Oh, what did you do at the library today? Well, I went to a poetry reading, a lecture about Eastern Africa and I saw Rob Zombie's film 31. Right. And yeah, so most of the crowd at Sundance movies are kind of like, you know, boring um, middle class film going uh, film snobs. And you go into the screening at 31 and it's Rob Zombie's fans packed with the theater, like like lots of black, lots of really different faces. And it was awesome. As far as the movie goes itself, though, if I could go into that. Yeah, yeah. It's not great. The best part in this film is um, an actor named Richard Breaker, I think. Let me see. Richard Brake. And he plays one of the clowns that's named Doomhead. And he starts out 31 uh, by having this multi-minute monologue that he delivers into the camera without cut. It's in black and white. And the audience is in the perspective of one of his victims. And that one scene is like, I think it's stronger than anything I've seen in any of the Rob Zombie films I've watched. And it got me really, really excited to watch the rest of the movie. But, you know, unfortunately, nothing else really approached that level. And Doomhead, he is the guy in the trailer. This is basically the scene that's throughout the trailer that you're talking about. That's right. They've taken basically parts of that open monologue and used it for the trailer. But he's compelling on screen for sure. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the reaction to him that I heard people say was that he could play a Joker. Like he could play the Joker character Mm. very convincingly. He is menacing and very scary. Interesting. So how would you compare this to something like Devil's Rejects then? I'll I'll own up to it. I just watched, in preparation for this, I watched Devil's Rejects for my first time yesterday. And I think Devil's Rejects seems to be one of Rob Zombie's films that people like a a bit more. It tends to be a favorite. And I can definitely see that. And and this shares a lot of the aesthetic. So this film takes place in, just to put it on the timeline, I think this one takes place in 1976. And I think Devil's Rejects takes place in 1978. So period-wise, it's basically the same. Um, violence wise, it's, it, they're both <laughs> very violent. I'm trying to think of other comparisons with them. I'm really curious, wonder why, and I don't know if he answered this, but why 76 as opposed to 78 and what that decision means, because it has to mean something. And part of me just wonders if it has to do with the songs he wanted on the soundtrack, but <laughs> it's entirely possible. Um, I, I don't know exactly why he chose 1976. I, I think that really just is a period that was really influential to him with the films that were coming out and uh, the music that was out. 
I mean, because watching Devil's Rejects, there's clearly a lot of em- like a lot of inspiration from Texas Chainsaw Massacre '74, right. Hills Have Eyes '77, right. um, and yeah, I can't really pick out exactly what movies are inspiring him in '31, other than those same couple. Uh, obviously, it's been compared a lot to Running Man. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. The most dangerous mm-hmm. game kind of thing. And Jay was saying he didn't like that aspect usually when it's uh, played out in film. Do you like this idea of a game for your life? I do, actually. Um, I, I'm i a big fan of the – well, I don't know a big fan. I'm a pretty big fan of the, the Japanese film Battle Royale. Yeah. I think that's probably my favorite example of this. And I think it's best done when it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I think um, the second Hunger Games film was uh, decent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Catching Fire, um, but yeah, I, I have no, I have no serious love for it. How about you? No, I like it generally as an idea. Um, I think you know sometimes it's done better than others. How does it play out? I'm here. I mean, not you know, no spoilers, but how sure. how is, is that an effective uh, device here? You know, it's an effective premise. Like it's a good idea. I don't think it's carried out all that well. And, and, you know, as far as like taking inspiration from something like hunger games, uh, there is actually, uh, like these moderators, like these onlookers, the people who are setting up this death trap who aren't the clowns, the clowns are kind of just like the instruments of death. There are actually these kind of like neoclassical Victorian strange characters. One of them played by Malcolm McDowell that are kind of, like, do you know in Hunger Games, you have like the Stanley Tucci character yeah. that's kind of like watching and narrating what's going on. Right. You basically have those exact same characters in 31. Hmm. Um, and a lot of them are being played by, I don't have all the names up, but Malcolm McDowell is one of them. Right. And he's wearing like this big flamboyant, you know, classical period powdered wig. And it's really strange as far as like the survival game goes, like that's where the that's actually where the film starts to run into problems because the aesthetic of it's great the production design and the art direction is really good the costumes look fun yeah um rob zombie i i think one of his problems is that he doesn't know how to shoot intense action scenes very well and this has a lot of like really fast-paced action scenes in it it sounds yeah. like maybe this was heavily influenced by death race 2000 which would have been a 1975 <laughs> film uh-huh and I think he kind of gets like doesn't know what to do. And so the camera gets really, really close and the cuts happen like every like less than a second. Mm-hmm. So you have no idea what's going on yeah. until like somebody gets like decapitated or stabbed or something like that. Yeah, we don't talk about action too much in horror movie podcasts, but it definitely is something we have talked about on the other shows. And directing action is definitely one of the most difficult things to do as a director. You know, Quentin Tarantino has said that action movies are the most cinematic because they require skill that doesn't exist in any other art form. And, um, you know, people like John Woo and Steven Spielberg are classically people who are really good with the geography of action scenes and really help you know where you are in an action scene. And as cool as like the Bourne movies were initially, mm, yeah, kind of got into that close handheld style of action where you can't really see what's happening. And and mm-hmm. I think that has kind of become the norm as of late, as opposed to more composed action scenes. So. 
How do you feel about that, though? Do you like it when the camera's close in? Do you feel like it adds to the intensity or feel like it detracts? I'm a big advocate of the geography of an action scene and really knowing where you are in an action scene. Mostly, like you say, because, you know, you're disoriented when you're not in that. Now, there are some scenes where being disoriented can be a good thing. And if it's what's right for the scene and the storytelling, that's fine. But I'm all about any camera move. I, I don't. I want it to be motivated by the storytelling. I don't like flashy camera for flashy camera's sake. I think uh, mm-hmm. good cinematography is always motivated by story. So, yeah, I agree with you completely. And um, I'm trying to think of. There's like this term that I've heard in film criticism called Zen chaos, specifically in regards to uh, James Wan's attempt at directing a Fast and the Furious movie. Interesting. Which I haven't seen that movie, but apparently it's kind of, and I can see this in his cinematography and, uh, and I know he didn't shoot those movies, he directed them, but in the Conjuring films where the camera moves around and you know what's going on. Like, you know what's going on and it's always used to the, the scene's advantage. And uh, I, I wish I had more action movies that I could reference here um, as far as like really well orchestrated well shot action scenes, but but I don't know very many action films. Sure. But you know, I, I will give Rob Zombie a bit of credit here because something else he said in the Q and A is that this film was shot in 20 days, um, which is 10 days less than devil's rejects, which was shot in 30. And, uh, this film was also for the most part crowdfunded 31 was. So I think, he kind of had the combination of not a lot of time and not a lot of budget. And so it sounded like nobody wanted him to make a movie after Lords of Salem. (laughs) (laughs) Was that movie really negatively received? I mean, certainly by audiences. Yeah. It's like a David Lynch movie without the subtlety. (laughs) Interesting. Wow. Because I was actually looking up some critic reviews and Lords of Salem, as far as a meta score goes, Lords of Salem has the highest one at a 57. Really? Yeah. I mean, higher than Devil's Rejects, which has a 53. Well, that's interesting. So maybe in terms of Rob Zombie movies, uh, it wasn't critically uh, poorly received, but I don't know. As I talk to fans of horror films, which I tend to do a lot, uh, Lords of Salem is usually rounding out the bottom of their... Rob Zombie filmography with Halloween 2. And, mm. you know, most well-regarded are, like, The Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses and and even some of his other stuff, like Werewolf Under <laughs> the SS and all Super Beasto and that stuff is coming in uh, higher than Lords of Salem for most people. Now I know they're defenders of Lords of Salem as well. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly a lot of artistry in it, but... Um, difficult it's a difficult watch it's not necessarily a pleasant viewing experience (laughs) yeah i need to catch up with more of his films so you know but i don't know i'm not i'm also i'm actually really not excited to do that because after watching devil's rejects like i you know i don't like it enough like i don't like it enough and and there's kind of like this level of artifice to it all where it's kind of like it really feels like a bunch of musicians that want to go out and make a film because it sounds like fun and I know that there's a lot of there's career motivation there and that there's a lot at stake in making these movies, too. But like 31 really feels like my skater friends in high school wanted to go make a movie. Hmm. Is that a good and, or bad thing? <laughs> um, it's a good thing if you want to have like a movie at a party and like yeah. I, 
it's not a great thing if you want like a I mean that sounds better than being motivated by artifice and studio interest in making money you know what I mean absolutely absolutely and but like you know to say like Solnier's Green Room is another movie that kind of feels like it's it felt kind of like the punk rock skater kids went out and make a, made a movie, but yeah. these punk rock skater kids have like some serious filmmaking skills. Like they know their sh- they know what they're doing. Sorry for the swears. <laughs> so 31, give us uh, kind of some final thoughts, especially on the creepy clown aspect of it. And then give us kind of your rating and recommendation. Sure. Um, so as far as creepy clowns go, this is an excellent choice. Like if you wanted to watch a creepy clown movie, this is, this is a good one because there, there are six in there. They're all very interesting and different, um, and especially the one. I mean, you have sick head, the um, the little person Nazi speaking in Spanish, yes. um, <laughs> so strange. And then you have Doomhead, played played by Richard Brake, which is just one of the coolest, probably one of the coolest. Uh, scary clowns I've ever seen, and he takes on kind of like a slasher villain role by by the end of the film. Very cool. And then you have two others. I, I can't remember exactly which ones they are. I want to say it's Schizohead and Psychohead are two clowns that have kind of like a chainsaw battle, which is really cool. It, yeah. So creepy clown wise, great choice. You know, as far as like a really compelling horror film, not so great. Hmm. And what do you think are the main things holding it back? I really just don't think there's any tension in it. For me, there's no tension in it at all, and it really has to do with the camera work. And That's I, interesting. yeah, I mean, I would, I'm like deducting like a whole five points for bad camera work because I just, it's so, so fatiguing and so irritating. And eventually, you're just like, will somebody nail the damn camera to the ground and stop cutting every two seconds? Right. I'm fed up with this also like i'm not a big fan of zombies dialogue it works sometimes in like a grindhouse sort of way but it's you know it's also it becomes a little too silly for its own good yeah i can imagine that um how is uh sherry moon zombie in this one she's better than she is in devil's rejects okay and she's actually she fits the part that Rob Zombie wrote for her. She didn't feel so shoehorned in. Like watching Devil's Rejects yesterday, she did feel a bit shoehorned in. And then what about the characters of the kidnapped carnival workers? Are the actors good? What what's kind of your take on those main are they your main protagonists, I'm assuming? Yeah, they are they are. And you know, Meg Foster from They Live, she is oh, in yeah. this, and she plays a character named Venus Virgo. And she is definitely my favorite. Um, I mean, obviously, you can you can assume that Sherry Moon Zombie is our most prominent character, but um, Meg Foster's character in this is really compelling, interesting. I liked her quite a bit. Yeah, she's excellent. She was in Lords of Salem as well, and she did a yeah. great job. Um, I like her most <laughs> from uh, what was it with the uh, He-Man movie? Masters of the Masters Universe. Masters of the Universe movie. Yeah. Yeah. She's Evil Lynn in that movie. <laughs> oh, wow. I did not know that. So what would be your rating and recommendation for this one? You know, everybody's going to think I'm kind of... <laughs> think I'm kind of two-faced because on the show last time when Jay and I talked about The Shallows, I gave that an eight, which, you know, thinking about it afterwards, that's a bit too high. And... uh because I'm going to be pretty hard on 31. Uh, I give it a 5.5 out of 10. And uh, I would say it's a low priority rental for horror fans. 
and an avoid for anybody else. Really? I'm pretty harsh. <laughs> okay, well, so this is coming up in theaters in September. We still have quite That's a ways right. to go. Right, you're not recommending anyone go out and check this one out? <laughs> if you're a Rob Zombie fan, like Allison has um, Devil's Rejects as her number 10 horror film, like I think anybody who who likes Rob Zombie's work that much, like a lot, they're going to go see it anyway, you know? And I don't think they'll be totally disappointed. I think there's redeeming things about this, for sure. Cool. All right, Kate, well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about Rob Zombie's 31 on the show. It was a pleasure to have you back. And where can people find you online? Yeah, so you can find me at kaganbreitenbach.com. I have all my film music there. Jay, will you please put that in the notes? Because I don't know if people can spell my name. <laughs> and uh, you can also search Quartet Macabre on YouTube. You can, you can uh, subscribe there. We have a lot of our horror music up there as well as some video game covers. So, yeah. Awesome. All right, Kagan. Thanks, man. Thanks, Josh. Nice talking to you. All right, and at this point in episode 93 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to bring you a feature review of Carnage Park. Well, howdy. What you doing out here? A couple of fellas decided to hold up the farming bank. Woo! They were last seen driving in this direction. They ain't here. These boys took old Tom Fontaine's daughter with them. Not by her volunteer, of course. So I got to do with me. How far is the scream travel out of here, Wyatt? Not too far. Okay, Carnage Park is a 2016 film. On IMDb, it is classified as an action crime horror movie. Okay, we'll talk more about that momentarily. But this was written and directed by Mickey Keating. And I think the horror fans out there will probably be familiar with some of his work. I mean, he did um, Ritual. He did Pod, Darling. Have you seen any of those? Pod, yeah. And people talk about that quite a bit. What did you think of Pod? I, I haven't actually seen any of those previous films. No, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I told the listeners on Movie Podcast Weekly that um, I, I saw enough potential, enough good things in this film, Carnage Park, that it's like, I'm going to check out this guy's other stuff because I'm, I'm curious about Ritual and mm -hmm. Pod and everything. And even Darling kind of looks interesting to me. But yeah, that's Mickey Keating, writer, writer and director. This stars uh, Pat Healy, which, which do we not love this guy or what? I mean, this guy. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm nuts about him. He's and, becoming an indie icon if he's not already. Yes, he is. And he was in Cheap Thrills. He was in compliance. I mean, he's. Do you have a favorite of his, Josh? Just curious. Um, the innkeepers was really good. Oh yeah, yeah, innkeepers. Um, yeah, he's. I mean, he's in a ton of stuff. He's everywhere. He's been in films for a, quite a long time, actually. I mean, his his filmography. You may not realize it goes back to like 1997ish, at least on IMDb. So he's been around a long time. If you don't recognize his name. I bet you you'll know him if you see him. And this also stars Ashley Bell. And I really like her. She Isn't she the contortionist that was in The Last Exorcism? Oh, is she? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, she was the gal from The Last Exorcism. And I believe a, a contortionist, if I'm not mistaken here. Pretty certain about that. But what I like about this actress, and I mean this 
in the most complimentary way possible, okay? Like, <laughs> I, I hope people don't take this the wrong way. She is great for a horror actress or, or to be in horror movies because they can put makeup around her eyes and she can really look weathered and haggard very fast. <laughs> the, this girl, I mean, I think she's... Uh, I don't know if that's a great compliment. <laughs> well, what I'm saying, I think she's lovely. She's beautiful. I mean, if you look at her IMDb page, she is just darling. But I'm just saying, the girl, like her, her cheekbone structure which is attractive and beautiful, but it is such that with the right makeup, they can make her look really severe. Yeah, and she does, um, this is not a glamorous role for her, which I guess being in the last Exorcism movies, she probably is used to that by now. But. Right, yeah. Because yeah, she is a lovely lady in real life. Absolutely. Very pretty. Absolutely. And um, so just... You know, we always have funny things happen while we're recording. I just heard a huge crash downstairs, and my whole family is supposed to be asleep. So, so I'm going to pause this okay, and go whoop some ass if I have to. Okay, so I'll be right back in a minute. Yep. But what if, what if, you guys, we heard Jay get murdered, and I'm just stuck here on the computer listening to his death along with all of you? Oh, actually, I don't know if the episode would come out if we were listening to his death. That probably... Well, maybe I'd go and try to get it and, and release it. <laughs> Just kidding. What would I do? What would I do if we heard a big thump? What if the killer got on the podcast? What if it's Kagan? Dangerously local, as Jay said. That would be interesting. Um, I do I have been to Jay's house once. Have not been inside, was not invited inside for fear that I was a vampire. Um, but I did drive to his house once. There's a slight chance I might be able to find those GPS coordinates in my texts if I go back far enough. So if we hear Jay getting murdered, I will attempt to find his address and drive to him. And my computer has enough juice that I will continue recording in the car while driving to save Jay. So... Um, we're just going to go ahead and go on this journey together. If we don't hear back from Jay in a, in a few minutes, now I'm actually starting to get worried that it might be something serious. Like one of his kids is hurt because. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm back. Thank you for uh, covering solo cast style while I was away. You're welcome. We, me and the listeners were very nervous for you and we were ready to come find you. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I was like, seriously, in my neighborhood, I just want to say, sorry to interrupt this review. Like, these houses were just not really well made, and they're paper thin, and so you can hear somebody outside next door, and it sounds like they're downstairs in my house. So it's kind of freaky. Yeah. I'm out of breath because I'm out of shape. Well, good. At least you're getting those steps in. Yeah. So As I was uh, describing in Clown earlier. Anyway, back to Ashley Bell. She's great, and she's in this film. Really happy about that. What else do we have, like, as far as casting in this? I mean, uh, Larry Fessenden, right? Larry Fessenden has, uh, pokes his head up. I really liked uh, James Landry Halebet. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know. It's Herbert, but it has a accent on it, so I'm not sure exactly the <laughs> right. spelling on that. Michael Villar's in this uh, a bit, and he's great in the scenes that he's in there. So I think it's a really strong cast. Alan Ruck. Makes us an appearance in the film, which was an exciting um, 
moment for me because I'm a big Ferris Bueller fan mm-hmm. from my childhood, and I'm, I'm a big fan of his wife on The Killing. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a strong cast. I think you've got a decent writer-director. And I tell you, I initially watched this for the premise on IMDb, and I was watching it with not with Horror Movie Podcast in mind, but I watched it for Movie Podcast Weekly because here's the premise. After botching an ill-conceived bank robbery in a desolate California town, two wannabe crooks flee the scene with a hostage and lead the local lawmen on a dangerous high-speed chase, right? And since it's action crime, I thought that's what it was going to be. And as the film opens, you've got... Now, Josh, tell me if this is true or not. It felt like a poor man's Quentin Tarantino knockoff. And and I don't mean that super derogatory like it sounded, because I love Tarantino. It just sounds like a lesser Tarantino. It looks like that to me. Yeah, are you talking about the Reservoir Dogs-esque scene? Yeah, well, and and not just that particular scene, but kind of like the the first half of the film. See, I I view this film in basically two parts, right? Like the first 45 minutes were very like Tarantino-esque crime film. I mean, you've got these really quirky characters. You got people like Scorpion Joe, for example, right? He's, he's a great actor and it's a good name. Yeah, yeah, true. And then you got people like Pat Healy, who is this really a, extreme character and, mm-hmm. and and but but also quirky enough where he's almost funny, right? So there it almost seems like there's a little bit of a comedic sense in it. And yet there there's like ultra violence as well. And I'm like, man, this feels very Tarantino-esque to me. But did you not pick up that or did was that not the case for you? I mean, there's a scene to me that I thought, oh, they got this directly from Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. But no, I wasn't thinking that most of the rest of the time. So. Oh, okay. I, interesting. Because I know I, I had read after seeing it and after thinking Tarantino ripoff that the filmmaker himself, he, he was, I guess he was kind of going for like, you know, the 70s film feel. I mean, it is set in the 70s, this particular film. And he and he was going for that, and it's like okay, that makes sense because Tarantino was always riffing on and you know doing seventies type material himself, you know because those yeah. are the films he they loved. Have the same goals as filmmakers, maybe. Right, right. So yeah, but um, I don't know that Mickey Keating would necessarily appreciate me saying it's a Tarantino knockoff. So I, I mean, no disrespect, but but the first half of the film is just kind of action crime movie. But very violent. I mean, there's um, there's a scene I described on Movie Podcast Weekly where we have a a, a head explosion, right? <laughs> like in that mm-hmm. the aftermath of this, we get to see this. It is extremely graphic and convincing. I mean, I was I was kind of tripped out over that. Josh, what about you? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, it was a, set the tone well for the film, and this this film also operates. You could either say in flashback or you could say it's out of sequence. I'm not sure which maybe out of sequence is probably more appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought that stuff worked really well. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely love that. And, um, but I will say for me, I mean, I was, I was just really kind of vibing with this film. We got California 1978, I mean, it opens like the the opening screen is 
it has this title card that says, The film you're about to see is perhaps the most bizarre episode in the annals of American crime. Out of respect for the victims involved, all names have been changed, right? And then, a little Fargo there as well. Yeah, a little Fargo. And then, like, one of the first lines in the film, you know, you, you hear, I believe it's Pat Healy's character called somebody a, a quote unquote, a some bitch. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and and it's like, man, I love when people talk like that. You know, like <laughs> instead of, <laughs> instead of saying son of a, you know, yeah. I just think that's tremendous. So I was like really loving this at first, but then Josh, I don't know if this is what happened to you, but it happened to me once it got about I don't know, the 40 45 minute mark. This thing it, it turns into like the horror film territory and what it reminded me a lot of was the hills have eyes too and i'm talking about the the new the 2007 version not the dirt bike kid version and um (laughs) and you know the hills have eyes too it kind of goes that route and even though i'm a horror fan and i like stuff like that i i didn't think it was very well done or very engaging because we had this escalating kind of stakes and pace and everything was going along really well and then it slowed way down for me but what about you yeah that's interesting it became a very different type of film Mm -hmm. and so you have to be on board for all the elements because yeah i was really enjoying the bank robbery elements and how it was unfolding but i probably did like the second half a little less i think yeah yeah and and but I I honestly, I kind of had trouble putting my finger on it in a critical sense. Like, okay, but what is wrong here? Because yeah, I don't, I don't love the Hills Have Eyes too, but I find it, you know, entertaining. I think it's worth watching, sure. you know, but this is, was honestly the kind of a slog toward the end. And I feel bad saying that because I mean, that's the, that's where he's going for the horror. And I'm like, okay, how come I'm not into this? So I honestly, I'm a little bit of a loss for identifying what didn't quite work, but can you identify it? I mean, I love Pat Healy, but I think one of those things might just be that because I'm so familiar with him, I could really feel his performance in this. Like I didn't, I never totally bought into his character because I just, it's very different from him, you know, most of the time. And I don't know, I just had a hard time kind of like, letting go of all the baggage he brought to the film for me, Mm. uh, even though I really appreciate him as a performer. Ashley Bell, though, I thought was totally convincing, and I was 100% with her character. Yes. Um, For me, it also, you know, as it focuses more on those two characters, I really missed having James Landry, Hebert in the film, uh, and people like that, so... I, I felt like he had so much charisma for me when he was on screen that to not to have him kind of be a smaller part of the film as it goes on was a bit of a letdown. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I'm just not, I don't know, I just wasn't quite as interested in the direction the film went, but I still liked it. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not coming in negatively on this film. I don't know if you are. But. Yeah, I mean, I'm not super negatively, especially since given the strength of the first half, which I think is good, and because of the... The violence level, I think the violence level might appear to like appeal to the horror fans a little bit, at least. And it is, it, it's pretty entertaining as far as that goes. So, um, 
I, I don't know. I just, it was enough of a, of a good film. It was a good enough film for me to want to check out this director's other work. And I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe it, he was off at the end, at least in my opinion. And maybe the other films are going to be better for me. So um, I see a lot of potential in this guy, though. I'll say that much. But for me, Josh, Carnage Park, I, I come in at a five, like kind of right, right in the middle there, five out of ten. And I just call it a rental. And I think for horror fans, I mean, just be be ready to be kind of patient toward the end because I think a, a lot of films that tend to escalate and ramp up, I mean, I'm not saying nothing happens, but it, it just, it's not as engaging for me toward the end. But that's a five out of 10, I call it a rental. What do you say, Wolfman? Um, well, I assume that this is not based on a true story. But if it really was, right. that may be also a reason for the film kind of going the direction it goes if we're dealing with um, actual events. And I, I think you are underselling the end of it a bit because I think there are some big things that happen in that second half. And some of the discoveries that are made, I think, are really um, kind of jarring. I think some of the characters we meet uh, are really fun and interesting and exciting. And again, I think Ashley Bell really is doing an excellent job and Pat Healy's doing a good job too. I don't, I don't mean to criticize his performance cause he's good, but um, mm-hmm. so I, I don't, I'm not coming in as low as you. I'm going to say a six, but I'm going to say it's a strong rental recommendation for me. There are other films kind of like this out there, like curve is a recent Blumhouse film that I don't feel like is too, different from this, although I think this is better than curve. Um, there was another movie. I was trying to think of what it was. I recommended to you several weeks ago and I was going to follow up and why I had started watching it. And I thought just based on these first few scenes, Jay's going to love this movie. It's like a survival horror. Oh yeah. I I wrote that down somewhere, but (laughs) (sighs) I couldn't find it. I went and looked for it on Netflix before we started and it may be gone from Netflix. I, I wish I could find it, but, um, Anyway, that one looked like maybe a be- slightly better version of this, and Curve is like like a worse version of this, I guess. I'm, I'm going to give this a six and say rent it. Did I already say that? Yeah, it's a yes, solid rental. Strong rental. I think if I was on Movie Streamcast, though, I wouldn't mind saying uh, stream it because it, it is on Netflix, and I mean it is on Amazon, and you can watch it right away. And mm-hmm. and I, I I would think people would have a fun time with this movie. Yeah, I think they'll enjoy it. And by the way, it does have a uh, stinger mid credits. So, you know, as you're watching the credits and appreciating the filmmaker's work, right, Josh? Um, there will be a stinger if you stick around. So, <laughs> all right. So, so there you go. That is our review of Carnage Park. If you end up seeing this, let us know what you think of it in the show notes for this episode. And so, Josh, now is where we kind of get crazy. <laughs> we're gonna head into some heavier stuff and maybe a little bit of uh conspiracy theory uh, i got some bizarre theories coming up so i i hope you're ready for this i'm very interested in seeing where this goes because okay. <laughs> you have not as usual given us any prior information <laughs> that's right so i have something kind of serious kind of heavy i want to talk to you about and honestly i tried to get dr walking dead kyle bishop on to the episode for this and um but he's just not available right now i thought he would be perfect for this i did get his feedback through email and but you are also the other 
perfect person to talk about this because of your sensitivity to these types of issues. And by sensitivity, I mean just your awareness and your education on such things. But um, there have been a lot of just horrific headlines in the news. And no, it's not that I want to um, blend all of these tragedies and, and people's just sorrows and all this stuff with horror movie podcasts. Like it's some kind of like, I don't know, idiotic like combination where it's like, hey, we're going to exploit the news. It's not like that. But I do want to comment on something. So with all of the um, the racial unrest and all these things that are happening that are just heartbreaking, I asked Kyle Bishop, I wondered, I started, because for the past couple of years, this has really been ramping up again. I mean, as you've pointed out before, this has never been fully ironed out. I mean, this is not behind us. And now that it's really getting to this fevered pitch, I asked Kyle if he thought that within the next, you know, I don't know, year or so, or even starting very soon, if we're going to see horror cinema reflecting the racial unrest that we're having here in America. Because, for example, Kyle has said in previous episodes, Josh, that like wars, like when there's, there have been wars, that would influence horror cinema. And he said in the past that actually economic struggle, very dire economic circumstances would sometimes even inspire more severe type of horror. And then we've talked yeah. about how 9-11 inspired a lot of horror and especially all the post-apocalyptic stuff. So I'm just wondering, I mean, this this racial like unrest is the best word I can come up with right now. It's to the point, it's escalated so much. I'm just wondering if we're going to see this manifest in horror. I mean, I hope so. I hope we can use art to talk about difficult issues and use it to help us learn about what we're experiencing. I mean, I think that's what art's great use is other than just entertainment is to explore, you know, what we're going through and, and to try to make sense of it all, or at least express maybe our frustrations or feelings about it. So I think it's. I think it should be explored in cinema. Um, you know, I think specifically about the film Fruitvale a few years ago. Mm-hmm. That was about a specific incident. I don't want to see a bunch of those about each of these incidents, um, only because it would be very sad and kind of overwhelming. But I think um, horror is a great place to explore. Uh, you know, social unease. I think. I agree with you. Now the pro. I think the challenge is, and I'm talking to the horror filmmakers out there, I think the challenge with this is that, well, for one thing, horror cinema is regarded, I mean, largely in kind of a disrespectful way. I mean, like a lot of people will say it's a step up, a step above pornography. A lot of people see it as exploitative. And so I, I think it will be a difficult and challenging balance for a filmmaker to make a, a film that's an exploration versus an exploitation, and especially something that people will see exploitative. So, like, if you were to tackle a sensitive topic like this, and I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, but but how would you kind of make that distinction but, and make it an exploration rather than exploitation? Well, I think Night of the Living Dead is a great framework to look at. And I think that is exploring racial issues in America 
And I probably half the people who watch it, maybe more, don't even pick up on that element as much. So mm-hmm. I think that's a great use of genre film to, uh, you know, even the idea of just making the audience uncomfortable um, in that film, putting a black man in charge of these people, uh, you know, with a, with a white woman. And, and those were taboo ideas in that at that time and um that that's an just simply putting the audience in a position where they have to think about it and analyze their own feelings about it uh is enough sometimes i think you don't even necessarily need to make the statement for the audience probably the best art in my opinion asks the questions and leaves it to the audience to kind of come up with the answers so wow that was an excellent answer and i love I love that you pulled Night of the Living Dead there out of your back pocket. That was impressive. And I think you're right. That is a brilliant way to approach it. Look at a film that has done it well in the past and then kind of pattern after that. I think that's that's excellent. So, yeah, ask the questions. Sure. I mean, Dawn of the Dead does it as well, especially in that opening scene in the ghetto. I mean, there are filmmakers that have done this already. But mm-hmm. I think it's definitely a time when these things could be explored again. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting you know, you brought up two Romero films there. And Romero, I don't know if he's just being coy or he's being modest or he's being, you know what I mean? But like when they interview him and ask him about the themes, he's always so like, oh, I, I just, you know, like he didn't do it on purpose. He's always like saying that. And I, I don't, I don't believe him. I honestly think. I don't either. I, I think he's a really smart guy. And I think, you know, he didn't infuse 100% of the things that you can draw from his films. I don't think he he intentionally put all that in there. I mean, there are lots of things that we can all read into films, but I I do think he put a lot of it there. And and those films are so, I mean, it's a lot like, this is not a horror film, but with uh, WALL-E, for example. (laughs) Do you you remember when that came out, they asked... um, was it Andrew Stanton that did Wally? Who is That's, it? That's yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So they asked him about the, you know his environmental message and blah blah blah, and he's like, "Oh, what? I didn't even mean to do something like that." It's like, "Yeah, right, bro. Come on." <laughs> it's like so obvious. Like, and and I think it's the same thing with Romero as well. But just a quick question about this, Josh. What are your feelings? Do you feel like when someone is, for lack of a better word preachy when it's on the nose when it's a little bit too blatant where anybody who watches it will get that this is a message film do you think that's a mistake to do that because a lot of people tend to find it off-putting i guess it depends what your goal is i i don't i mean yeah you see that a lot in art where an artist wants to make a direct statement i think that's okay too i think pretending that you're not is the problem i think it's okay um, even for a documentary filmmaker to have a strong agenda that they want to tell a specific story a specific way um, because all art is subjective. And so all, you know, all filmmakers are telling their story. Why hide that? You know, I mean, I think if you were a filmmaker who wants to strive for objectivity, again, especially a documentary filmmaker, that's fine. And I think that's another choice you can make. But I think the most important thing to me is being honest about it. Like I taught you talk about a film like Wally. I don't feel like that film hides that its message, Mm-mm. even if Andrew Stanton did later. Um, and I didn't have an issue with that film. But another environmental film, Happy Feet. I feel like that movie does try to hide its message, and it's like knocking you over the head with 
And you're just like, okay, like stop it. I get it. Plus like, we that get it. movie sucks and that movie's it. horrible. Like, yeah. Anyway. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just a level of artistry involved, but look, I grew up listening to punk bands who, for me, music is largely about lyrics, you know, I be, and those are very overt lyrics oftentimes talking about politics and, and gender issues and race issues. And so I'm really drawn to that kind of stuff. It doesn't bother me in the least. Um, in in the musical form let's say but there's you know there's a it's just a different form of artistry i think to maybe mask it in poetry or whatever and there could be poetry of the camera as well okay so in response to you then like how about this when someone is making a film that's like a message film like if they were to tackle this racial unrest thing one of my biggest pet peeves about film critics and i do it too and it drives me nuts is when a film critic will say this phrase this film is a commentary on, and then they, they'll say the thing, like racial unrest. And then mm. they'll act like like that's some kind of exploration. Like this is like true film criticism or something, like where they've actually gone deep enough into it. It's like, it's like bro, just saying this film is a commentary on this that isn't really covering it or proving that the film is a commentary on. You have to like cite examples and explain how these themes were used in order to do that. So I, I yeah, guess my, as, as Kyle Bishop would say, use evidence. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. You, you uh, cut to the chase there or what I was talking about, but h- how does a filmmaker go far enough in that? Like, I mean, you know, flipping the coin on the other side, like as a filmmaker, how do you go far enough in exploring a theme? And like you said, you know, h- how do you ask the questions? That's a good question uh, in and of itself. Um, I I just think that, again, that depends on the individual artist and everyone's going to have a different approach to that. And I also think if the artist didn't put it in there, that's okay too, just as long as it's in there, just as long as you can use evidence to show um, that your reading is supported by the text. That doesn't really matter if the artist said it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's what I'm guessing. That's what Kyle would say about that as well. You know, he can overread a text as much as he wants. Uh, and if he's looking at a film and he sees that in there and he can find evidence for that in there and he can make a good argument, then it doesn't really matter if the filmmaker put that in there in the first place. Um, you know, if, if I'm a filmmaker, a lot of filmmakers don't want to bash you over the head with it. Um, and I don't know that all filmmakers are smart enough to either. Sometimes, if you have a really great writer that might be buried deep into the text. And we talked about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And that's a film that is dealing, uh, you know, it's very easy to read into that film that it's dealing with homosexuality and a young man struggling with his sexuality and trying to figure out who he is. And the screenwriter claimed that that was definitely in there. And the director claimed that he had no idea that was in there. Hmm. And you know, different members of the cast and crew had different opinions about it. So that's just, you know, it, it, there's always going to be, and you know, and you might get a director like Romero who just won't even cop to it <laughs> right. if it is. So it's really up to the audience to decode what the filmmakers are sending you and, and to take it uh, for what you will, I think. Okay. Well, did that for, answer your question? Yes, it did. And, and you actually handled that. That was a tricky, abstract question. You handled it very well, as usual. But I just wanted to tell the audience out there, just so you know, when I asked Kyle Bishop, I said, you know, if you can't make it on the show, just, you know, let me know your thoughts on this. And I said, do you think the 
racial unrest that our country has been going through in the past, especially in the past couple of years, is that going to show up in our future or near future horror cinema? And he simply said, yes. So <laughs> watch for that. That's going to be coming. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope it can be done in a way that explores because, you know, people obviously feel strongly about whatever it, it's, t- it's a touchy subject. And so I think people dig their heels in um, and they don't want to give up an inch of their point of view oftentimes. And again, I think art is a way to break down some of those barriers if it's done well and get us to maybe reconsider our points of view. All right. So as a very weird segment on episode 93 of horror movie podcast, we have a something really bizarre to talk about. And I was actually trying to call in various different authorities for this Wolfman Josh. Like, for example, uh, Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop. I tried to see if he was available tonight because he has a good authority on the zombie angle of things. And actually, what I want to talk about is something that I believe, honestly, and I'm not joking, is a real life type of zombie outbreak. I've talked about this before, but this is something that I think is along those lines. But my expert guest I am bringing in tonight, he goes by Reva, and since he does not have a horror moniker, I thought we could call him Reva the Ripper. What do you think about that? Welcome, sir. Ooh. Ooh, I, I like that. I that's, know. That's, that's very <laughs> fitting, actually. That or Reva McIntyre, I thought would be good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. So, the what you should know about Reva listeners is um, he doesn't necessarily like movies. You know, he doesn't watch a lot of movies. He likes them, but he doesn't spend time watching movies. So, that's something that's always surprised me about him. I, I work with him in my day job. He's a very capable and talented tech guy. He knows a lot about computers and all that stuff. Way more than I know. And uh, Reva, I'm bringing him on for his like technical expertise and his um, <laughs> firsthand knowledge of the phenomenon we're talking about tonight. But and, and also his birthday is the same day as mine. Just putting that out there. But It's a true honor. Yes, yes. Right. So anyway, here's what we're going to talk about. I know this is a horror movie podcast. I know that we talk about horror movies mostly, but this is so weird. This Pokemon Go phenomenon is... <laughs> is that what we're talking about? It, this is genuinely freaking me out. Now, before the before the hardcore staunch horror fans turn this off and be like, Jay of the Dead, you're killing us with this content. Just give me a minute, okay? Just give me a minute to talk about this. Um, the thing is, I we have talked before about what constitutes a zombie virus or or something that you know, makes a person a zombie. And Kyle, (laughs) now remember this, Josh, you can back me on this. Kyle says it's once a person's like agency or their ability to um, choose freely or be agents unto themselves is taken away, right? Like a free will. Right. So um, now, Aaron, for those who don't know what Pokemon Go is, I can't believe there are people out there who wouldn't. We're going to have Aaron explain it in two seconds. But I just want to say, I am going to give you at least a couple of examples. We'll talk about some examples of this type of agency or, or, or one's thoughts for one's own well-being in, in the world are out the window with this. So, Aaron, will you explain to people, if like just assuming they've never even heard about it, what is Pokemon Go? 
<laughs> yeah, no, that analogy already works. But what Pokemon Go is pretty much, it's a what they call an augmented reality game. So it uses Google Maps, and on the app, you walk around in Google Maps, and you see a virtual world of Pokemon. And as you walk around, wild Pokemon pop up. You catch them just like in the games. You collect them all. You Wait catch a second. Them all, sorry, Aaron. Sorry. Now you're you're going way too fast for a guy like oh, me. Oh, is that too fast? Oh, because yeah. I'm I'm Generation X. I was born in the '70s. When you say you're catching them, what the hell do you mean by that? Like, okay, so, so pretty, explain this. I mean, I wish they had some kind of add-on to like throw physical balls. That would be awesome. But pretty much on the app, it's similar to like Angry Birds. I don't know, Jason, are you familiar with Angry Birds? Where you kind of flip your finger across the screen. There's a Pokeball, you got to catch them, you flip it just right, and that's how you catch them. You kind of keep them collected in your collection of Pokemon. So it's a video game, more or less, on your phone, except (laughs) it is... Go ahead. The augmented reality part is where it uses your camera. So it's kind of halfway to virtual reality. You're really not completely in the world, but it uses your phone's camera, and it kind of projects the Pokemon that you're trying to capture inside what your camera's seeing. So, I mean, you say you're looking at a monument or something or there's a tree background, you'll see your Pokemon augmented in reality right there through your camera phone. Yes. And it's not just your phone, right? Like, this is utilizing all types of cell phone technology that hasn't existed previous to this with GPS tracking and all this other stuff that it's, it's like... It's pretty much... It, it uses a lot of old technology, I guess you could say, or modern technology in the last decade, but it puts it yeah. in a really cool package. I mean, it just pretty much uses... Google Maps just in a way instead of looking at like boring streets you kind of see a different reality and you know it adds the Pokemon and things like that so I mean it just puts it all together in a nice way the way I described it to someone is it's essentially just geocaching but using like iPhone technology or basically is that correct yeah geocaching for 28 year olds who want to relive their 10 year old self Okay, <laughs> and I actually so for the listeners, I mean, I I know that probably every single person listening to this podcast is more tech savvy than I am. But I actually I had a coworker, not Aaron, but not Reva, but a friend of ours, a mutual friend. We were sitting in a meeting, okay, and he was doing this, and I'm like, okay, show me what you're doing, because he he kept saying, there's one on the table, there's one right there on the table, like <laughs> where we were sitting, and it's like one what you know and and so he showed me his phone and i could see the table through his camera phone you know the the table where we were sitting but then i saw this little character like hopping around on the table and i must mm-hmm. I, I must admit that was kind of neat i guess <laughs> but it was also like um i'm going to hit you you know like stop doing that and so the rest of this meeting I was I was a little bit surprised. I mean, this this friend of ours is very responsible. He's one of the managers or supervisors. And we were in a semi-important meeting and he continued to play this game or whatever it is, this augmented reality. And so I was just um, it sounds like I'm being judgmental, but I was just amazed that he did this. So, but Jay, let me be go, judgmental for one second. Okay, go, please. So I we were dog sitting because we are considering getting a dog and my wife is not too thrilled about this idea. So we you know our friends were going out of town, so we thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to kind of like 
let her see how happy the kids are when there's a dog in the house and stuff, right? <laughs> so um, I'm out walking the dog, and we take the kids to this park, and we're out there at the park, and it's a usually a pretty busy park, but on this day, you know, it's in the middle of the day on like a Wednesday. There weren't that many people there, and there's I don't know maybe ten total people in the park, and everyone except for me and my kids were there playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> It was crazy. And I was just like, what are these? How do people have time in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week to do this? What is happening? And um, the tag to that story is that the kids left the dog's bone there. And it's kind of a cool bone. Like it's like a antler. So uh, the dog owners really wanted to preserve that and, and have that when we gave them the dog back. So I went back to the park later that night to find, see if I could find this dog bone. And there were, I don't know, 50 people there playing Pokemon go. <laughs> <laughs> so the virus has spread and, and it was near uh-huh. dark. A yeah. horde was like, gathering. What is happening here? <laughs> right now. Now see, and, and Revo, the Ripper, you can actually explain. There are places that I understand are called, um, gems and other little like landmarks they get associated with this game right i mean can you explain yeah. those so there's two different as you travel around the map randomly or based on some you know algorithm that the company has made uh there's two types of locations you can stop at one is a gym which you can control and that's where you battle other teams there's three color teams in the world there's red blue and yellow and you just kind of battle for over the gyms but the other stop <laughs> is a called a pokey stop which is where you know it's things like you know jason at work or um, you know there's the flagpole right there that's a gym so it's you know kind of pretty important right. central locations in an area so those are gyms and then the pokey stops are randomly kind of mini little stops where you can get items and things and i see wa- people wandering around this flagpole outside of our workplace oh it's the happening spot now. yeah and it it's it on i'm i'm not being funny on this podcast <laughs> I'm, and and I realize, you know, a lot of people out there is like, okay, this guy's overreacting a little bit, being a little bit dramatic. But I'm genuinely a little bit freaked out by this because <laughs> because I think it's well, first of all, it is it is hit by storm. Wasn't this released like Thursday, like last Thursday or Thursday before last? This has only been out what how long, Reva? I think it was a week. A week from tonight, so a week ago, last Wednesday night. Yeah, and 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 do you do we know the numbers on this? I I hear it's like huge. Oh, I don't know the I don't know the user count, but I know it's past Tinder, and I think it's gonna pass Twitter and daily it's, active users, which is millions, tens of millions. It's gonna pass Twitter. Okay, now, I mean, I know that like it hit like NPR and some of the news organizations on like Monday, and that's when it went from being like it just what it was just everywhere all of a sudden. Yeah. Overnight, everyone knew about it the next day. Uh-huh. Well, and in fact, in our meeting today, we had a manager's meeting and um, the bo- the big boss man <laughs> had to tell us, don't, don't, you know, you can catch your Pikachus and stuff, but <laughs> just do it on your break. That was the first, the first line item. <laughs> it was the first line on the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> no. Yeah, that's how important it, that's how just like consuming it has become. Here's what really bothers me, and I think this is why I'm kind of freaking out about it. And yeah, I know. I mean, I'm way behind the times and all that. I'm not cool like all you hip kids. But like, the thing is, people already are really distracted, especially by their devices. I mean, there was something 
this meme or something that went around where they they just they removed they took a bunch of p- pictures of people out in public and um just looking at their phones and then they removed the phones so you see all these photos of people just kind of looking down at their hand and how bizarre that is and 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 <laughs> and we've all seen the the photo of like um th- this group of students who are at a museum and there's this like incredible painting behind them which is supposed to be like you know, this wonderful painting. And, and you can tell I'm an art critic because I don't even know who the painting was. It's so, nice. What'd you say? <laughs> it looks nice. Oh, yeah, it's nice. It's a pretty painting. But all the kids are have their backs to it and they're looking down at their phones. Okay, so I think... Hold on, wait. One more thing on that. The new Werner Herzog documentary, which I don't have the name of it in front of me, but it's about technology in our age. And if you watch the trailer, I'm going to just spoil one scene from the trailer, which is a great scene. Um, It has these Buddhist monks at this park and then it pans over and it says like, I guess the monks were done with their meditation and they're all on their phones under the tree. (laughs) Oh no. Oh, it's messed up. So honestly, like, and then I'll admit, I'll, you all can make fun of me now. I don't have a smartphone and it's, it's genuinely because I just, I don't want one. I don't think I'm better than anybody or anything. And in fact, I'm, I'm most times at a disadvantage to everybody else, but I, I just don't want one. And it's making me sad because I think that the virus, the quote unquote virus is the disease of distraction because I see parents all the time, like around their kids. And, and I know this sounds like I'm getting really preachy, but I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steer out of this in a minute, but I see parents like they're looking at their phones and their kids are talking to them and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're not even listening. <laughs> and then I'll be talking to another adult and, and, and then they will just pull out their phone and start like doing whatever they do on it, texting or whatever. <laughs> and they're not even like listening to me. And I'm like, wow, this is weird. It kind of freaks me out. So I don't know. Do, do you guys feel like Aaron, Reva, you're a tech guy. Do you feel like this disease of distraction, maybe it's not a disease at all to you, but is this troublesome? Should we be worried? Um, like specifically to Pokemon Go or just in general with like mobile like technology and social media? Well, whatever you want to tie it, whatever you want to tie it. I, I think it's, I mean, I think Pokemon Go just, it like encapsulates the potential of the distraction, I guess you can, you can kind of get from, you know, technology in your face all the time. But, but is it a, mm-hmm. I don't think it's really like a bad thing, really. I mean, it could be worse. Like, what if it was like in what's that one? Like Wally, where like everyone's like laying down in their sofa seats and like they're <laughs> three hundred pounds. Like this time, at least people are outside. I mean, right? It could it could be worse. Like, I don't think anyone's gotten in a car crash or anything. Yeah, there was some fake article, but it's not that bad. It could be worse, specifically to Pokemon Go. Now, now the fake article, are you referring to the guy on the highway thing? Was that was, yeah, yeah, was yeah. that a, a myth? Because I've wondered uh-huh. how many of these stories are myths. Well, Jay, do you know about the dark, the dark side of Pokemon Go that we're already seeing? Which aspect? Because you- How people are being lured into robberies mm-hmm. and pedophiles are hanging out at like yes. destinations and all this stuff. I mean, that's I mean, actually scary. Yeah, but I mean, there's. I think there's way more potential in in things such as Craigslist for those to happen. Like until we see the first Pokemon killer, then uh, maybe we can get alarmed. But really, I, mean, I don't know if that's true. I mean, you've got little. This is designed for children. There aren't a lot of true. children on Craigslist. You never know. Hmm. 
But yeah, well, it is true. I mean, those those there there's. I mean, to explain it, at some of these Poke Stops, you can place items that show that that area is going to have more Pokemon around, so it naturally attract attracts more people who play the game to a certain location. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so Reva, when I asked you about this, about you know coming on and speaking, just so the the audience doesn't think I'm a terrible friend to you, like I I asked you partially because I heard you laughing. Um, at this phenomenon quite a bit, but I understand, I've come to understand that you're actually a user yourself. You play this game, right? You're a hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm not ashamed to say either. Okay. Like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to change my title at work on my emails to Pokemon master. Oh, I like it. Okay. I want everyone to know. No, like it's fun. Like I really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> See Josh, I bet most of the people listening are in Reva's camp. They probably, I bet a lot of people listening feel that way too. Well, we had a little bit of a dust up in our, uh, you know, HMP community on Twitter this week about this. There was a lot of debate about it going on, and I'm just going to out you right now, buddy. I'm sorry. Uh, you know what's what happens on Twitter <laughs> makes it its way onto horror movie podcast. Yes, <laughs> but uh, Gareth Young was, you know, kind of advocating for Pokemon Go uh, amongst some of our HMP listeners, and then Juan tried it out. And was very skeptical, but then came back later and said, you know what? I really like this. <laughs> oh He's like, goodness. I met three people in my office today that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> and so That's what I'm saying. It's, some it's, people are talking so about the people. social aspects, you know, and David uh, from the UK, one of our you know old listeners here, he said that um, a lot of his friends who play it, they, normally they'd be inside gaming all day and now they're out side walking around so at least they're getting you know some fresh air and sunlight and exercise so wow well there could be an upside to it i suppose thank you dr oz and dr sanjay gupta i mean you guys are putting out the positive aspects i guess so i mean i guess that's good but what i'm worried about and i'm making a, a sad prediction right here i mean we're already distracted with our phones and texting and driving and stuff but i predict that uh, we're going to see some kid killed for wandering out in traffic trying to catch one of these creatures. I, I bet. I bet that's things pretty like, dark, dude. <laughs> I know. But I that's what I worry about because, like, I was driving the other night and I saw there was this kid walking on his phone. He was doing that swiping thing. And who knows what he was doing? He might have just been just on sc- scrolling through pictures or whatever. You know, I, I can't say for sure whether he was on there, but he walked right out in front of my car. Did he swipe left or right? <laughs> it was kind of up and down. So, Reva, <laughs> what is that? Is he catching? That's Pokemon. He was, it was up and down Pokemon. Okay. <laughs> I feel like you guys are kind of making fun of me, but like, that's all right. Cause I, I guess I deserve it. But, um, I just, I, I don't know how to feel about this because I'm, I'm a little bit worried. And I think it's just because maybe I'm getting old and out of touch. Maybe that's what it is. But, what about the aspect of the fact that it's not actually there? Because tonight when I came home and, and I was I was listening to my kids and they were talking about these imaginary things. And it's like, yeah, when I was a little kid, you could have imaginary friends or you would pretend because kids always say, pretend this or pretend that. And it's like, yeah, sure. but but what we're seeing here is adults pretending, not, not judging Reva, not dissing. I'm just saying... You're pretending that there's an animal there or whatever, and you get and you capture it. But then, what what do you have? Is it is all the value in it? 
is the value solely um, that moment of entertainment or that little that little peak of um, adrenaline or whatever because you captured Pikachu? I don't know. You make me seem so simple minded when you explain <laughs> it like that. I'm just. I'm sorry. I'm trying to analyze. I'm not. No, I mean, dissing you. I promise. I think there's this like a natural addiction in people to collect things, regardless of if it's tangible or intangible. Okay. And that coupled with just the huge nostalgia factor of it, like that's what I really enjoy about it. So Jay, are you, uh, is this really just about you having lost your childlike imagination? Is that what we're really talking <laughs> it, about? <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, I think you can't play pretend anymore. It, well, I, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I, but the genuineness, like I, I really feel like, I was disturbed by it and, and kind of freaked out in a way that I haven't been freaked out by things like this yet. And so this was a real first for me and it might just be a flash in the pan. Maybe it's a fad. Maybe it'll be over in no time. And the next time, you know, we'll hear about it at the end of the year when they do the 2016, you know, it's new not, year's list. It's not Jay. It's going to take over just as you fear, I think, because oh, first of all, every app developer in the world is working on their version of this right now. Number one, number two, already before this broke VR was the big thing. And, you know, work, I work in the film industry and there were already people within, you know, like a year ago saying young filmmakers don't go into filmmaking, go into VR. That's the future of filmmaking. And I, at that time, I was like, what are you, crazy? And then I saw some of the VR that's out there right now. And I was like, holy cow, like, this is next level. And it's an immersive experience. And I think that's the direction things are going. Okay, well, two... The machines are rising, Jay. I Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is Terminator world right here. But, okay, two, two quick little questions. And then we'll start wrapping up this weird conversation. But... Um, <laughs> Is this true, Riva, or is this some kind of like urban legend? Um, I read on CNN.com that there was actually a girl who was playing this and she stumbled onto a dead body. And it, 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 the dead body really doesn't have anything to do with Pokemon Go per se. It's just that she happened to go somewhere where she wouldn't otherwise be and she found a dead body. Is that true as far as you know? Yeah. I, I think there's two articles. I think there's a girl. I don't know where that one was. I think Missouri or something. Yeah, Wyoming. Wyoming. Uh, and then I think there was another one in California. Some boy. Same thing. Just like some kind of inner city, you know, creek wash area that no one really ever goes to. So that sounds like a good thing to me. That's got, they could be. They should make a Scooby Doo app where you yeah, find exactly dead solving crime. <laughs> yeah, you're solved. They're solving That's unsolved great. mysteries. This is great. And then locally, I'm I'm like ninety percent. This is sure. This is true. This is a secondhand account, but someone told me. I hate starting stories like that. Someone told me, but uh, they were listening to the radio locally, and I guess there was this mom on there complaining and warning other parents on the air, saying, um, "You got to watch this because our our kids were out in the front yard." And this grown lady runs up in the front yard by our kids and says, hold still, hold still. Don't, I, I got, I got to catch this. And like freaked out the child because she wanted this, the stranger wanted the kid to hold still so she could catch this, this creature. And, um, I, you know, I just, it's just weird guys. I mean, it's weird. I don't know what else to say, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like anything, there are going to be people who use it for good or ill. Um, I think it is a fad in the sense that, 
it's not going to continue at this level for this long, but I think it is showing us like, you know, an evolution in how people are using their phones and that will probably continue. Um, you know, just like a lot of these things have, but I'm, I'm kind of with you, Jay. I'm a bit of a Luddite. Like I use computers all day, every day for my job, but only for the exact things that, uh, involve my work. And I pretty much don't know how to use them in any other way. So I'm like a whiz on all editing software and, you know, things like that. But, um, that's about it. Uh, so, you know, and I kind of relate to that parent you're talking about that isn't listening to their kid. I remember when, you know, I, what are they called? iPods. That's right. <laughs> when iPods first came out, I was addicted, like hopelessly addicted to podcasts. I would listen to them all day, every day. And I had to make a conscious decision to put it away and be present with my children. Cause I was like, Oh wait, they're going to grow up and never be this age again. Maybe I should, when I'm with them, like pay attention to them a little bit. And I got okay at that with the podcasting. And then when I got my iPhone for the first time, which was late, you know, it was like the 5S era, I think, is when I got a, an iPhone finally. I was kind of with you with the dumb phone up until that point. Mm-hmm. I got lost again because I've got Twitter and my email and Facebook and everything else. And so I do a lot of my work on the phone that I normally would have to be strapped to a desk at a computer or, um, you know, even just on my laptop. I can get a lot of emails read when I'm on my phone and I end up working a lot. Uh, when I could be spending time with my family. And this last week, my kids called me the texting man. And I thought, that's sad. (laughs) I'm so sorry that happened. (laughs) That's sad that I'm the texting man. (laughs) But, you know, I like those memes out there, you know, should we make plans to get together and then sit around and stare at our cell phones all night? You know, like, that's legit. And my my brother-in-law, who's a millennial, like he's, you know, he's like 25 right now. His friends have rules that when they come over to a party or whatever, everyone leaves their phone by the door and they don't look at it while they're hanging out, you know? And, nice. And I think, so even younger people who were raised with this type of technology, I think are savvy enough to realize that human connection is still vital to our existence. And um, I don't think that we're on the verge of, of the rise of the machines quite yet. Wow, okay, thank Although you. when the machines do rise up, we won't be able to say this is my friend Eddie Schmidt said this. He's like, no more rudely named on demand programming, only possible requests, time permitting programming. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, okay. So Reva, we'll give you the last word on this Pokemon go and I'll shut up about it. I just, uh, what, what message do you have for the horror movie podcast community out there when with, pertaining to Pokemon go? I don't know. I just say give it a try, I guess. I mean, why not? I think it's one of, I think looking back, it might be one of those things where, you know, it's, it, it seems like a flash in a pan, but then everyone tries it and a large majority enjoy it, like Starbucks, Facebook, other things like that. And then all of a sudden it becomes a normal piece of life. Not saying that Pokemon itself will be that specific thing, but, you know, maybe technology like this, augmenting reality, leading to virtual reality things like that. It's just another kind of pivoting point that, you know, social engineering and humanity takes. So it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. As for now, I'm hooked. So 
call me what you want, Pokemon Master, I prefer, but I really enjoy it. <laughs> okay. So so maybe we should put you in the show notes as Pokemon Master, not Reva the Ripper. I don't know. <laughs> no, Ripper's fine. Ripper definitely works. <laughs> okay. And and do you have time for at least one more question that's not related to this, but it is related to Google Maps. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So have you guys ever done this the search where you search for like creepy images on Google Maps? Have you ever seen those? <laughs> no. I've seen a few posted on blogs here or there. I've never searched myself. Well, I've done this, and I don't know for sure. I'll defer to uh, Reva the Ripper here, but are these actual like weird, creepy things? Because let me just set this up. One time, I looked at Google Maps, like genuinely, I looked at my house, and I noticed something in the backyard. No, it wasn't a bunch of dandelions. That's a joke from previous episode, but (laughs) (laughs) which Reva's like, that was a terrible joke. But you have, if you listen to the podcast, Reva, you would know. But anyway, we have a trampoline in our backyard and I could actually see my two children on the trampoline in the backyard. They were like, you could see them on it. And it was, it blew my mind. You guys, I was so flipped out. I'm like, there they are like (laughs) captured by the satellite and then and, and I, t- I like took a freeze frame of it and if i can find that i'll actually put it in the show notes for this don't episode. they blur their faces out though what no it, it's like it would only zoom in so far i mean it was still like at least like a couple hundred feet up so they were very tiny i, I mean i could only tell it was them because i'm just familiar with the trampoline and how it looks and stuff and there was you know, they were on it, but you couldn't even tell it was people. It's not like it's not like Men in Black where they like zoom in. <laughs> right. Exactly. See, like the movie, the movie people who stuck around, we did get a movie reference. Th- that's right. That's right. So, Reva, I've seen these creepy, and if you guys like Google image this, you'll probably come up with some. Now, probably a lot of these are doctored, but I mean, are, are any of these legitimate that you know of? I know I kind of put you on the spot, but... I'll have to, I was trying to investigate. I pulled up my parents' house back in California to see if anything was creepy. Like, um, they, or just kind of weird or out of place. But no, I know what you mean. You can see a lot of detail. Are, are there ones where there's like ghosts or things like Blair Witch stuff going on in the back? Yeah, like, like little freaky stuff. Like, and you got to be careful because there's one, there's one like that you can click on. And and it's like it brings up my Apple brings up like the deceptive site detected, you know, so you got to be careful. Oh, I just got that. I, I'm searching it right now. Yeah. So anyway, I'll bring my computer for you to fix it, Reva, if I get like <laughs> hacked over this. But but I'm I'm just saying I've seen things on here. I've spent some time kind of looking and I have seen some freaky things that people found and it looks legitimate. And um. I know. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm looking at it right now. Like, well, like people can, you can tell when the Google car is coming by. So, like, you can definitely set things up to be definitely strange. So, so you feel like they they kind of set it up way. So, if you, so listeners out there, if you go on Google Maps and you say you type in creepy Google Maps, all right, and then you just you don't have to click on any of the pictures. You can just scroll down through on what it finds, and um, you just search that actually on Google Maps. Yeah. Yeah, like like there's one of a bunch of people in costumes that I think is just legitimately like there's a person in a wolfman costume and um you know and I think it's just Halloween but it is a little bit unsettling to be honest like it is kind of bizarre 
Um, there's one where these fake mummies are stuffed into garbage cans, and you can tell they're not real, but it looks like a bunch of bodies lying there. Um, it, but but there was there was one that actually kind of stuck with me that really freaked me out. Um, it was just really unsettling. Like one or two of those. I mean, a couple of these you can tell they're just totally, you know, staged. But some of these are freaky. Like I saw. Do you remember? Um, the village, those we don't speak of, there was actually, uh, I saw something weird like that one time. <laughs> but anyway, I just wondered if anybody found any creepy things like that. And if, if you thought there was any merit to these, because what if, what if those Google cars or the, the satellites actually captured something freaky? Yeah. I mean, I know that there are a couple where they supposedly caught like someone like with a dead body or whatever, like I know there was one like dragging a dead body or something like that, but I'm sure, I don't know. I don't, I'm sure they're staged, but they might not be like, I think the thing that creeped me out kind of like with your kids is um, I remember I searched my old house once. Um, I don't remember what, what for, but there was uh, my old car that like didn't exist anymore that had been like smashed to bits, you know, um, crunched up in a car masher. And then it was like, time travel like oh my my cards and in front of my house like this is so weird and then like going back to show my wife like a couple weeks later and it was our new our, like our new car was there instead because the image had been replaced you know wow like, oh, that's kind of crazy yeah it is it's it is like a time travel type situation <laughs> oh man that's weird that is really weird okay well skype dropped reva the ripper so that's unfortunate sorry to say that but anyways <laughs> He was fun to have on the show, and I like that guy a lot. All right, guys, so it was kind of weird. Mysteriously, we lost Reva's connection, and he said that never happens with his internet. Like I said, he's very smart with computers, you guys, so it's bizarre that we would lose him on Skype. So we think evil forces are afoot. But, um, yeah, that was out of the ordinary. <laughs> but... I tell you. It was just like, Hal, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. Like, yeah. Like Hal 9000. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you guys. There's something else that kind of freaked me out. This is a little bit of conspiracy theory stuff. This is a little bit nutty. You can make fun of me. This is old news for a lot of people, but it was new news to me. I had not heard of this conspiracy. <laughs> and, um,. You know, it just, it was kind of brought to my attention this past week, and it freaked me out a little bit. Now, I'm we generally, Reva, just so you know, we usually talk about movies on this podcast for real. We don't usually talk about this, but I have to bring this up. So, I have been kind of alarmed to learn. The other day, I was at the office, and was looking out the window, and one of our coworkers, he said, I want you to check something out for me and tell me what you think about this. This isn't about Fruit Ninja, is it? No, but what, <laughs> wait, what is Fruit Ninja? Oh. I'm just joking. It's just, a, it's just an app game. Okay. Yeah, there, there no, no more game app talk right now. This is, this He's is overloaded. This is serious stuff. Um, so there was this, uh, this jet up in the sky and it had this, you know, beautiful jet stream behind it up in the sky. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Are you talking about chemtrails now? Chemtrails. <laughs> so, I knew you guys would make fun of me. Everybody's making fun of me, but but just just hear me out. Hear me out. So um, I'm like, yeah. He's like, what do you think about that? And I'm like, what? The jet stream? He's like, it's not a jet stream. He's like, 
And I'm like, well, what is like a con trail, like a condensation trail? And he's like, it's a chemtrail. And I'll just tell Reva, this, this is Steve we're talking about here. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> and Steve is funny, right? So he cracks me up and, and I'm like, okay, okay. So he starts showing me YouTube videos and started looking it up. And I started getting a little bit nervous because they were showing that these, these, cha- these trails that follow behind jets, you can see YouTube videos where they actually start. It, it doesn't appear at all to be condensation. It appears to be that they're spraying something and they can turn them on and off. And, you know, a jet flying from city A to city B would, would just make a straight line. Well, these, these trails do like tic-tac-toe boards across the sky. They'll do curves across the sky. And it does appear. I'm just saying, what if, what if we are being sprayed with something and we don't know what it is? So I'm just saying, this is not new, I know, but tell me your thoughts on this, you guys. I think it all culminates with Pokemon Go. That's what the government's been preparing for years. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you'd have an answer like that. I knew it. Wolf I mean, Mike. Jay, I mean, do you want the real answer? <laughs> yeah, we're going to go straight to just like straight to the truth here. Well, I, I mean, that's that's what I'm seeking. I mean, I, I mean, you all know, uh, Josh knows from experience that I um what could be the possible upside of <laughs> let's say the government spraying poison or whatever on the entire population what's the what is the like what's driving this conspiracy well yeah okay so you mentioned one of the theories that, I want motive I want to hear what the motive is okay okay now I'm not saying to to people out there just for the record I'm not saying I believe in this but it is very interesting. Okay, that's all I'm saying. In fact, our our mutual friend Steve Riva, he doesn't think that it's anything negative per se, but it definitely is secretive. So, um, so, so yeah, some people, some conspiracy theorists think that there's the government is spraying us with poison, and then maybe perhaps they are um, testing different types of poison, you know, on different cities, or maybe. One conspiracy is that what they're spraying us with is a cancer-causing agent because cancer is uh, such a huge industry. We make a lot of money, and it could be population control. You know, all these really cynical-type theories. But for me, I'm just like, well, I mean, it's it could be a, a quote-unquote good thing. Like, maybe they're trying to prevent against something. Maybe they're trying to spray these things for good reasons, and it's a secret because of something that's still scary. I think either way, it's scary if they're actually spraying our populations in these major cities without telling us why they're spraying. Why is this so secretive? I don't think anything is being sprayed, is my first comment <laughs> so i think it's just i don't vapor. know where to start well, water vapor i mean i think there are certain areas where uh there's more air traffic near airports um near you know air force bases and i know where we live there are both of those things mm-hmm. uh, so i think that could explain crisscrossing i know like in terms of like it turning off and on that can have to do with like the altitude of the plane and the higher you go the colder it gets and so you know, the exhaust does have water vapor in it. And so then right. it would turn on if you hit a certain height and turn off if you got lower. So I don't know. I think there are 
reasonable explanations for it. You're a man of science, and I admire that. But, like, for example, Josh, just so you know, I mean, there are planes flying at the same altitude, you know, and they don't have a trail. And then there are planes that do have a trail. And what's so really... did you... Where have you seen this documented? At? You can you can see these things on YouTube. In fact, there... And I know everything on YouTube is true, right? Like, it's... <laughs> It could also be how long is the plane flying because condensation takes a little while to build up. Well, that's interesting. That's a good point. See, this he's a man of science, Reva. You got to appreciate that about the wolf man. I think just like logically, too, like it, you always see him flying at the same height as regular jets. So, I mean, to know that they might just be studying the wind patterns at that altitude. That's why they do zigzag, maybe to see where it goes. I don't know. That's another way to explain it. Okay, well, how about this? Uh, like, typically, we don't... So, there is, a, there is a YouTube video. I just want you to look at a little bit of it. it it's it's chemtrails-fully-exposed on YouTube. <laughs> and they do put really awesome, creepy music behind it, which I appreciate, you know, because, you know, that's, that, that helps. That helps it make it more scary. But if you watch this, it's really hard not to look at it and think, okay, they're they're. Sp- they're turning on something and spraying something out of those freaking jets. Um, anyway, I know it's insane. I, I am honestly not. A, I even, <laughs> I'm not a conspiracy theorist, typically. I mean, it sounds like with the Pokemon Go stuff and and this that I'm kind of a nut job. Like, probably Reva is is not going to work around me anymore. <laughs> like, like, but But I'm just telling you, I think it's interesting and it's a little troubling. If you look into it, I'm just saying. I, I just think that, you know, a YouTube, uh, you know, video presentation isn't maybe not necessarily. I mean, look, I, on the other hand, yeah, if there was a vast conspiracy, maybe it would take kind of a, a rogue person on YouTube to expose it. But I, I think for the most part, it would be very difficult for, you know, this huge number of people, pilots and scientists and government agencies to be able to keep a secret like this from the public that we can see with our own eyes too. So it's like, it's if they are trying to keep a secret, they're not keeping it very well. Um, but isn't the best way to hide things? They're not doing it at night. <laughs> they're hiding it out in the open. I mean, I've, I've learned that through um, marriage, like the best way to hide things. I'm just if you kidding. want a it's real a answer to this, if you want a true answer to this, I'll get you Brian, a.k.a. Brain from the Sci-Fi Podcast, and he will tell you the science behind this because I do. I, that's what he does. That's, and, um, that's what I want. And if you don't mind texting him, just text him right now. See if he's available able to jump on here impromptu like i mean this okay. guy's like an astrophysicist reva yeah, that'd be interesting he's be interesting to know he's but, I, but I also just think you know and what brian also talks about a lot is there's just a fear of like like you demonstrated with our pokemon conversation <laughs> there's a fear of technology there's a fear of of science there's a feel of progress a fear of progress and there's is a fear of government within certain groups as well. And so I think conflating those things um, probably leads to something like we're talking about here. I'm going to text Brian. I'm going to mute myself really quick. You text him, but I still want you to listen, Wolfman, because I got some, I got two cents for you here. So the first thing is you're a documentary filmmaker and we'll come back to that in a second. Reva referred to men in black and actually the way that so many conspiracies were were hidden or dealt with in Men in Black is they dismiss people who are nut jobs and say, you know, 
okay, these people are crazy. Yeah, Elvis is not an alien or whatever and blah, blah, blah and men in black. And it turns out that actually it was true. And what if what if that does happen more than we think where we're just being totally dismissive of these people who are crying that the sky is falling. And it turns out that the way that they are getting us to dismiss them and not pay attention to them is by just just relegating them to being like conspiracy theorists or nut jobs or, you know, stuff like that. And and Josh, I'm a little bit surprised because as a documentary filmmaker, aren't you, don't you want to ask the, the hard questions and, and get to the bottom of this stuff? The first time I heard about chemtrails was at the 2009 Toronto Film Festival, right after we'd premiered Clean Flicks and people were coming up to us to congratulate us. And one guy said, I've got your next film look up chemtrails <laughs> and that's where I first heard about it <laughs> and I did and I wasn't impressed you weren't <laughs> but Reva you're a little bit worried right that you were being sprayed I don't know I was gonna go off like what if like all the people that are you know say they see things or hear voices like what if it's true like what if they see the real reality like the matrix yeah it's- like the enemy of the state isn't that the tagline for that movie it's not a conspiracy if they're all really after you yeah yeah, I love that. Or like, you know, it goes same thing. Like, what if our dreams are the real world? <laughs> We're we getting keep, so deep right now. We could keep going. Like, it's like, why not? Like, it could be. I like this. I like this. So for the, we actually have horror filmmakers who listen to this podcast. I know that after listening to this portion, it's hard to believe, but there are reputable filmmakers like uh, Wolfman Josh here who listen to this show, and I just want to say that's your next um, screenplay idea, chemtrails that cause zombie apocalypse. Because what if, okay, just here, here's my premise to the movie, okay? You got... Isn't that what happens in Return of the Living Dead Part 2 anyway, basically? Oh, yeah. I got, I got one that goes right. off the kind of like dream horror thing too that I, I've i seen before kind of played off of it. Okay. I, it, it goes off your chemtrails too in a way, I guess, if you want to tie it in. Tell it. So like, it was like this prompt idea. Brother, yeah, tell it, and I'll come back to the screen <laughs> screenplay idea. Go ahead. Yeah, it was like a prompt idea where, you know, this virus starts spreading where people continuously spend time dreaming. And eventually they start seeing these figures through the dreams. It's called Pokemon Go. Start, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pikachu's kidding. everywhere, Charizard. <laughs> but I guess in the dreams, as they see these figures and they dream harder and the figures get closer, once the figures eventually touch them, uh, the people die or cross over in this other realm. So slowly the world starts to succumbing to this dream world where they kind of sleep so much and dream so much. These figures start taking over the world through the dreams, through this like chemical that they made everybody ingest. Nice. I like this. Wolfman, are you going to make this film? <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's a great idea. I, uh, it's still not grabbing me though. <laughs> just the, so just dis- the- a disbeliever. I know. Yeah. I know. It's just, yeah. That's what he is. That's what he is. Okay, how about this, Wolfman Josh? Tell me mm-hmm. if this works for you. Yeah. Okay, p- picture, picture. I'm doing that director thing where I make the square with my fingers, okay? So p- picture this. Um, you got this government conspiracy where in the various cities around the United States, they're trying out different chemicals, spraying the population with chemtrails. But in San Francisco, for example... They spray one particular formula that that is the zombie 
virus. And that begins the zombie apocalypse right there. That's a great lead in. That's a, that's a way into a zombie story. Just saying. I know. I know. I know. Everybody, (laughs) you know, if you take that idea and you make a film, that's fine. I don't even want any money. Just put like, thanks to horror movie podcast in the credits. Okay. (laughs) Right, Josh. Yep. All right. So any, any luck with brain? I texted him, but I have not heard back from him. So he does start teaching pretty early in the morning. So he may have already retired for the evening. Okay. Well, next time, next time. So anyway, Reva, any final thoughts before we um, stop uh, wasting your time this evening? <laughs> like, do you- Oh no, not a waste at all. I was happy to be here and uh, talk. I'm welcome to I'm down to come back anytime you guys are willing to have me. I would love it. And in, in fact, um, Reva here, he was, Josh, this is funny. So when we reviewed Jurassic World over on Movie Podcast Weekly, I was going to have Reva on and, and he knows, he knows a thing or two about dinosaurs and I was going to have him on and I was telling the guys that he was an actual paleontologist, like legit, <laughs> like Dr. Alan Grant. And that's who he was going to be. And it was going to be hilarious. But, um, you know, cause you know, Carl and Andy, those, those dodos, they would have believed it. But anyways, I, I was on that episode. Well, you wouldn't have believed it because you, you <laughs> just I remember you're like, yeah, I, our guy fell through. I remember you saying that. You, you see right through Kim Trails and all this other stuff, Josh. <laughs> so you're not an easy believer. But anyway, so Reva the Ripper, um, is there anywhere on the Internet like that you would want the listeners of Horror Movie Podcast, which are very nice people, very pleasant, um, where you would want them to follow you or check you out on the Internet? Um. I guess you can go to toughghostprinting.com, T-U-F-F, and then ghostprinting, all one word, dot com. Mm-hmm. I just have some, you know, people call it creepy. I just have some of my random art up there if you want to check it out. It'll email me, I think, if you want to send me a message. I just kind of have some stuff up there. That's really the only thing I can think of. That's cool. And, and just for the road, I know you're not a movie guy. Could you tell the horror audience, if you had to pick one, what would be your all-time favorite horror movie or scariest horror movie? That, uh, what was it? Exorcism of Emily Rose, the one where the girl's jumping up and down on the... Oh, I just got the chills thinking of it. <laughs> okay. You dig that one? Okay. Oh, dude, that creeps me out. Oh, sweet. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Respectable pick. Okay, buddy. Well, we want to thank you for being here on the Horror Movie Podcast. Reva the Ripper, everybody. You have a good night, sir. Thanks, guys. Take it easy. Bye. Take care. Later. All right, and at this point in episode 93 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to be joined by the mad doctor himself, Dr. Shaw, Dave Becker. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Jay. How are you? Oh, I'm good. You're calling in by the phone because you're out, like, trying to track down the Jersey Devil, right, Dave? Uh, yeah, right. I'm in the, I'm in the middle of the barrens right now. Okay. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> well, but no, we, we went to, you have a really early work shift, something insane, like 4 a.m. So, uh, yeah. I'm going to be five hours from now. I'm going to be starting my shift. Okay. So, so we only get you for a few minutes on this episode, but we appreciate it. Now, Dave, I understand that you had a, an interesting Twitter exchange, maybe a question that you wanted to pose. What's up? A new follower, or I guess somebody who just started following me on Twitter posed a question. I thought, wow, it's a really good question. I hadn't really been asked that before. And it was, if there was, and he, you know, this person was talking, he was talking like in general across, I guess, all movies. Um, the question was, if you could only watch one actor's filmography, 
for the rest of your life, which actor would you choose? Mm. So, that would be the only movies you could see where, where it's ones with this actor in it. Who would you choose? Mm. And I was thinking as far, I mean, I answered thinking full cinema, but I thought we could gear this towards horror, too. Is there one actor out there who, like, I'd like to, you know, just sort of open this up to everybody, to the, to, you know, to the, to the listeners and everybody. Is there one actor whose filmography you think would would sort of encompass everything? Let's, you know, and it's kind of tough because you know I would I would gravitate towards Bella Lugosi, but right. then that would cut out the era I love, you know, the eighties and and seventies and eighties. Mm. But then um, I don't know if there's one actor out there. I got it. I got it, Dave. Oh, who's that? Because I was trying to think. Okay, yeah. who is going to enable me? to get in the most bang for my buck. And it would have to be Clint Howard. <laughs> oh, Clint Howard. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just, um, there yeah, you, you got a lot of Ron Howard movies then that you have to slot yeah, through. Right. <laughs> I'm, totally, I'm totally messing. But, uh, I mean, he was in the new Halloween, and um, he's in that crazy film Ice Cream Man. But no, oh, that's right, yeah. I'm just kidding. That's not my official answer, but I thought that I'm, was funny. When I was thinking, when I answered it for like... Oh, all cinema, you know, across everything. You know, the first thing you do is you go to your favorites, you know, and I was thinking, okay, well, I got Paul Newman, Robert De Niro, and actually Lugosi had popped to mind and Vincent Price and all that. And then I realized probably the best answer would be a character actor. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because, A, they're in a lot more movies. Uh, B, they cover a lot more genres. You know, they cover a lot more genres. The answer I ended up going with was Harry Dean Stanton. Nice. It's a good choice. He's an alien. He was, yeah, he's been in a lot. He's worked with John Carpenter a couple times, Escape from New York, and Christine. He was an alien. Um, he's still making movies. He was in the Avengers movie recently. Um, he's worked with David Lynch. He's worked with Sam Peckinpah, you know. So I thought, okay, that was, that was my official choice. Wow. It's interesting because when I was having the, uh, the person I was having the um, back and forth with went with Nicholas Cage. <laughs> so he's got the wicker man. <laughs> yeah, right. The wicker man, exactly. Oh, boy. <laughs> but I just thought, I don't, I don't know with horror, is there one actor out there? You know? If you, if, question. I really love I mean, the, what, I, I when love, you brought this up, my first thought was, do you go with someone who's young so their future's kind of unwritten and maybe you get a lot more movies? Like, my, you know, I thought, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman is great, but he's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe I go with somebody who is 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 a young person. Then I thought, well, maybe you get Anton Yelchin, and then he passes away prematurely. So that that's not safe either. Right, right. And I was thinking the same thing when you said that. It's like you know, because Anton Yelchin would have been probably a damn good choice. Well, honestly, Dave, the way I would approach it, if you said, okay, if we're only looking at for the horror genre. I would have to pick like someone who's in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Gunnar Hansen or Marilyn Burns, or I would pick somebody that's definitely in my favorite film. That know? would be the yes, exactly. That would be the that would be the tempting way to go. Although you're certainly limiting yourself, like right. If I, I, went, I do I, Jim Sidow, honestly, out of that film, probably yeah, Jim Sidow. <laughs> I my, I mean, my favorite, I guess, official horror actor is Bela Lugosi. I'm just such a big fan of it. But there's such so many rough movies towards the end of his career. You know, I mean, you're back at the beginning. He's in, you know, you got Dracula. You got, you got. He's in the Wolfman. Um, 
white zombie he did. He's in Island of Lost Souls, Son of Frankenstein. He's got all these great movie roles in there. You know, he was like really the early guy for horror. Um, but wow, those later movies, you got, you know, you know, Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla and, and the Ed, Ed Wood films. And it just, he just sort of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well. You know, you just sort of have those early ones. Vincent Price was, I thought, a little more interesting. And then I was thinking maybe Christopher Lee. Mm, okay. You know, Christopher Lee could be interesting. I mean, it's mostly Hammer and whatnot. Um, mm. And then he did, I don't know, was he in Sleepy Hollow? Was he one of the actors in Sleepy Hollow? I know they have a lot of hmm. sort of British uh, actors in that movie. I don't know if Christopher Lee was one of them. I thought he was. I thought he was a judge early on. Christopher um, Lee is an excellent choice, I have to say. That that gets you a, a big range of movies. Ooh, yes. That's what I'm thinking to in a lot of horror, horror movies. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the horror movies there as well. I um, think I go with uh, maybe D. Wallace, because then <laughs> I can yeah. you know relax with my kids and watch E.T. or something, but like then Cujo. I can also hang out with Jay and watch Cujo. Yes. I get my, yeah. my werewolf fix and watch The Howling, or you know, mm-hmm. there's Critters and the Rob Zombie Halloween remake. That's right. Yeah, quite a lot of good selections there, and they kind of throw her in every every low budget horror movie nowadays. So, yeah, that's true. What, I think we just seen her in uh, something recent. I can't remember what it was, but we watched. I can't remember what it is, but yeah, yeah, she, that's she's in everything. It seems like that would be a good choice. Yeah, she. Nice. I, I just want to open it up to the um, you know, to, to the listeners and get their input. You know, is there that one actor that they would go with if you could only watch that? One actor's filmography for the rest. And do you do you take a chance like they were, uh, like Josh was saying on a on somebody who's got somewhat of a of a track record, but then is still making movies? You know, like you go with with and is it a character like you go with like a like a Sid Haig you know, or a um, you know like like somewhere along, along those lines or you know uh, Tony Todd or something like that. Um, I don't know. I just thought I thought that was a very it was a very interesting question. I've never been asked that. Before. Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's a fun question for sure. For me, it'd just be a matter of okay, what movies do I want to watch forever, and then just see right. who's in those. You know, I think that's how I would approach it. Okay, but uh, uh, that's how and that's how I. That's probably the way I think most people would approach it too. <laughs> you um, picked, are you gonna are you gonna limit yourself? Are you gonna limit it, yourself to okay? I'll pick somebody who was in my three favorite movies, the three movies I could live with. And, I mean, you could pick Kevin Bacon and really go far. I mean, you get Tremors and <laughs> that's true. You get that's all kind true. of stuff with him. <laughs> and and he's, he's connected to like every movie somehow, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Larry Fessenden actually would be a great choice. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm thinking about it, oh, Larry Fessenden, yeah, yeah. In fact, he's in a movie we're talking about tonight, Josh. So that is correct. Yes, yes. That would be a good choice. Yeah, that would be a good choice. So anyway, I just be interested to see what other people had to say about that. Excellent. Um, and one other thing I, I did watch, actually just today, I saw the um, new Ray Harryhausen documentary. Ooh. Uh, Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan, it's called. Nice. Um, and it, it was produced by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Um, so it, it, it's, it's actually a very interesting film, mostly because um, it was done primarily while Ray Harryhausen was still alive. So he got to comment on all of the films, uh, and he got to give like the behind the scenes and everything. And I think one of the interesting things I think John Landis said it right at the beginning of the documentary, like in the first couple minutes, he had he had one line of dialogue that I thought was just brilliant. 
He said, Ray Harryhausen is the only technician who is an art star. <laughs> and I think that that fits him perfectly because what I found out, one of the things I found out watching this film is, you know, everyone talks about uh, the special effects guy. Mm-hmm. But Ray Harryhausen was involved in every single step. He's the one who did the storyboards for the film. He chose the film sometimes, the topic, you know, with, with Charles Schneer or you know, whoever he was working with at the time. He chose what movie they were going to do, laid out the storyboards. He was on location for every single one, working with the actors, not just with the look here, look there, you know, because this is where the, the creature will be, but working with them on other portions. I mean, all the actors who talk about him say he was very much involved in like all of the processes, right down to, at the end, he would help promote the film. He would help sell the film. So I didn't realize, he says himself that he would rather, he thinks of himself more as a filmmaker than a special effects guy. Yeah, he might be the most prominent example of that, but I would also argue for Stan Winston to some extent, although he has very, like his director, I mean, the things that he's directed are very few, I mean, but Pumpkinhead. Yeah, but Pumpkinhead he, he did, and there was one other movie I think he had done too. A Gnome Named Norm or something, but... Yeah, that's it, A Gnome Named Norm, yeah. But he's had a ton of other, like, you know types of credits throughout the cinema, like, you yes. know, other yes, jobs. But, but I think, yeah, you make a, a very good argument for Ray Harryhausen. I think it's just it's interesting because Harryhausen, he, he doesn't get the director's credit, but he does talk with the actors. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't, he doesn't get, like, the whole sort of storyboard thing, and he's the one who's, like I said, picking these stories. He creates all of the creatures. Not all of them, like the, um, what was it? He was talking about when he was doing Jason and the Argonauts, one of them, was actually a Norse... No, or maybe it was Clash of the Titans. Was it the Kraken? The Kraken, one of yeah. them was One of them was more of a, was a Norse creature as opposed to Greek. Mm. But yet it worked, bringing them into, this, into the story. Um, you know, and of, and of course it did. Now, they show clips from most of the films. You can tell the ones they didn't get the rights to, like they don't show... Um, they didn't show any, any of the clips from Clash of the Titans, but they showed all the behind-the-scenes stuff of him like working with the Medusa and so forth. And he kind of regretted pulling all those snakes in their hair because he had to move them along oh. with everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, and, and, but it's, it's just interesting to hear him talking about it. And they bring in so many other filmmakers, like um, Steven Spielberg called him the father of all we do, that anybody who's ever worked in, in science fiction or fantasy owes something Ray Harryhausen, like James Cameron said, that his sort That's of incredible is his sort of skeletal, metallic-looking um, Terminator, Terminator. You know, without the skin. Mm-hmm. He said that went right back to Harryhausen's skeleton in Jason and the Argonaut. Yeah, you can see That's that. Who drew inspiration from them? Um, and it's just incredible how everything right along the line um, works. And they, and they talk to everybody. They talk to special effects. They talk to you know modern animators like John Lasseter. Um, and Nick Park and everything, and about how they, you know, and Nick, Nick Park and Henry, Henry Selleck are sort of carrying the torch of um, stop-motion animation. They're, they're keeping it alive, um, you know, still, still working that medium. Because a lot of people think it's dead, and it's really not. I mean, you know, you look at Wallace and Gromit, and you look at the Henry Selleck films like Coraline, and, and uh, um, what was that other one he did that I really liked? The Parry Norman. Mm-hmm. You know, how they're, how they're sort of keeping that going. Yeah. I think Henry Selleck did Paranorman. I might be wrong about that. But anyway, it's not dead. You know, there are still people working with that. Um, and they, they, make a, they make a point of that in this movie. But 
Yeah, just everybody who he inspired. And the, some of the, the biggest names, as far as like, like filmmakers, Tim Burton um, was, was in this, Peter Jackson, um, like the James Cameron, all these people just sort of blowing praise. I think one of the coolest things I ever saw was when hey, Ray Harryhausen got, I, I don't know if it was in the, the technical achievement, he got an Oscar. Tom Hanks was giving it to him. It was sometime in the 90s. And Tom Hanks says, everyone says Casablanca and Citizen Kane, but for me, the greatest movie ever made was Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> which I thought was really cool. And, you know, it's not that, that Harry Housen necessarily worked in horror, but definitely monsters. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and created some of the most memorable, if not the most memorable one. And what's amazing is the personalities they have. You know, like, every single one of them, he almost had to be an actor, too. When he's because he's sort of giving personality to these creatures, um, and when you're doing what he was doing, you know, like if you're an actor and, and you're, you have this scene where you know you have this dramatic scene, and then they say cut, let's take a twenty minute break, come back, you got to pick it up again. He was doing, he would do a roar, and it could take him three days, <laughs> you know, just to do that. But yeah. yet it looks it looks so fluid. I don't think you could ever look at one of his animations and say, oh, I can see where he cut off for the day. And picked it up again. That's and right. I worked, you know, this is a guy working without, like, at the time, the technology to, to sort of remember where he was. He just had to remember, you know, where he was and what he was doing. He said, he said the only time he says that, that, you know, he's like the most gentle man you'd ever want to hear when he talks. Just very, very, you know, very gentle, very kind. But he said the only time he ever became, I guess, like a prick is when the phone was ringing in or out. <laughs> You know, yeah. because then you got to go back and remember, okay, which way was this arm going? Which way was that snake going? You know, things like that. Right. right. Uh, but, you know, and, and it's just so interesting, too, to hear, like, his daughter talk that um, he never had an oven in his workshop to sort of bake these characters. So he would always have to do it in their oven in the kitchen. And she said, after a while, you got tired of having, you know, baked chicken that tasted like, that tasted like clay. <laughs> they have monsters in the oven. All, the, the flavor definitely affected all of their food for a lot of years. Uh, um, it's, just, it's just a very interesting, very um, cool documentary. I definitely recommend it. It's Ray Harryhausen, Special Effects Titan. Um, and you just really see just how far-reaching his influence was, just in cinema in general. Hmm. So, cool. so real fast, Dave. So that's Ray Harryhausen, Special Effects Titan, 2011 yeah. documentary. And, and where does one find that if the listeners want to catch up with it? Okay, well, I had picked it up on, I had gotten it on Blu-ray. It's like fourteen ninety nine on Blu-ray. Okay. The price is really low right now. I don't know if it's available online or not. I'm sure it is on one of them. Um, I did not check that, though. But uh, however you can get a chance to see it, it's, it's worth checking out. Just... Uh, you know, and I, you'll learn something. I mean, I learned something watching it. Um, it's just really, really pretty cool. And even talk about how they went in to clean out his garage after 50 years. They're talking to this one um, uh, guy he works. Um, oh, I can't remember uh, who it is now. But he said he opened up a bag, and right away he saw all of the stuff from the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Just these little parts of the creatures laying at the bottom of a bag. <laughs> you know. Um, and they're really working. What they're doing, the, the Ray and uh, Santa Harry Housing Association is doing, is preserving all of these things and keeping them, you know, because obviously this stuff degrades over time. And just sort of keeping them all together and, and um, uh, putting more displays. And I think they might even have a museum, I'm not sure, where a lot of them are displayed. Okay, yeah, Dave very... and, and Jay, I, I want to 
butt in here really quick. We have a important breaking news from the horror movie podcast community here. Let's hear it. So this is live uh, on the show. This is live. It's happening now. Okay. Um, Dave, I know you're calling in from phone. Would it be possible to text you a photograph really quick? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm going to text you a photo, and I'm going to Jay. I'm going to put it in the chat for you. Okay, I'm ready. And then I'm going to tell you guys what we're looking at. Don't look at it until let's look at it all at the same time. Okay. But tell me when you got it and you're ready, and then we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> okay, you got it. You got it. Coming to both of you. I have it up here. Okay, tell us what we got. Okay, so we are here looking at an image of uh, Dead Box Mike and his lovely wife. <laughs> I love Dead Box Mike. And uh, they are submitting kind of the first part of their <laughs> Dead Serious Horror Challenge. Oh, I love he it. He just put this in a text to me, uh, but we'll get the full thing later. This is uh, Dead Box Mike and his wife watching Hell Baby at the hospital while his <laughs> wife is in labor. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That is one heck of a dead serious <laughs> horror challenge right there. Yes, it is. I mean, that's so brave because, you know, I've I've seen Hell Baby, and if I, I've never actually born a child out of my womb, but I imagine from what I hear, you know, if you're having that very difficult, painful experience and you're watching, like, imagery about a scary baby. I mean, that, that would be, I mean, I am. And your husband's bugging you about a dumb podcast he (laughs) listens to. (laughs) I mean, that is respect. That's really cool. Oh, that's That's awesome. So huge shout out to Mike and his wife. This is their first child. And, uh, he paused for a moment to snap a photo of him and his wife watching hell baby. He said he didn't feel good about rolling the video tonight, but he said he will take the time to make an official dead serious horror (laughs) entry. Once, the baby is born, safely born. <laughs> that's incredible. Very cool. Mm, oh, that's a pretty strong, dead serious challenge, you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And that was and congratu- <laughs> and congratulations to them too. That's great. Huge yeah. congratulations, Mike. That's so awesome. Absolutely. Man. If that kid's if that kid's a male, you got three choices: Jason, Joshua, or David. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> those are good names. No, uh, so. Uh, Dr. Shock, thank you uh, for being here with us tonight. I know you got to get going for your bedtime, but uh, yeah, tell- unfortunately, and I, I'm hoping this. Uh, I don't think this will be an issue going forward. It's just um, it stinks. I hate I hate not being part of the show. But what are you going to do? It's just uh, real life butts in every now and again. But but the uh, listening to the rest of it. Uh, that's right, and the listeners can catch up with Dave at uh, dvdinfatuation.com. He's also on Twitter at dvdinfatuation, and you can hear him on the Land of the Creeps horror podcast as well. And uh, thanks again for calling in, Dave, and you have a good night, my friend. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right, Josh, it's just about time to wrap this up tonight because this is getting kind of crazy. We're going off the rails. <laughs> And I'm sure people are sick of listening to this. So, um, but first, before we go, a couple quick little topics. I, I think you were going to tell us a little bit about the Green Room Blu-ray. Did you get that yet? Yeah, I picked that up um, the day of its release. I, there's not as much to say as I had maybe hoped for. I wanted to talk about what some of the features were and really just uh, <laughs> and try to convince people to go out and support this film if they haven't yet. Um, I think now that it's on Blu-ray, maybe we get Dr. Shock to watch it because, you know, he's got this DVD infatuation and all. He does. 
But um, yeah, there there's not a lot on the special features. There's a decent featurette, you know, a little tiny behind the scenes doc, and then there's a commentary from director Jeremy Saulnier, which is good. I was sad to see, and I haven't finished the whole thing, so I'm not positive. I tried to watch it um, before the show so we could talk about it. I watched probably the first quarter, and then I watched the very end just to double check. But I don't think he mentions anything about Anton Yelchin's passing uh, on the commentary. And that's definitely not in the documentary, which I was sad because I think it's an opportunity for someone who knew him well and worked with him on such a great film, which as we've said is kind of his swan song to memorialize him. Um, And so I was, I was pretty bummed out about that, that, uh, you know, this was clearly recorded before uh, his passing, at least again, at least the parts that I heard, but the commentary is very enlightening, and Saulnier talks about how after Blue Ruin, he kind of had the opportunity to do anything he wanted and apparently turned down some pretty big Hollywood projects to do something he was more passionate about that um, you know tied back to his own roots, and, and he had seen some disturbing things he wanted to put on film. Uh, one of the kind of inciting incidents in the film is something that he had uh, witnessed and wanted to put on film and you Whoa, know are this, you saying the inciting incident he saw yeah. something like that mm-hmm. he had seen something like that that he couldn't get out of his head and so he was kind of exercising that for himself by putting it in the movie um the satellite story that we appreciated or mm-hmm. you know i kind of slightly criticized that but uh that was but it turns out that was actually from his real life and that was something that happened with him and his friends and, um, you know, some of the scenes that happened early on in the film, like when the band's playing at a Mexican restaurant, that was a, a real experience that <laughs> happened to him. And he just wanted to take all these things from his growing up and, and put them in a in a genre film that didn't Love it. follow the studio guidelines of making it easily accessible. He wanted to make sure the violence was always real and surprising and messy and never... Uh, you know, was backed by a swelling score or, uh, you know, was something that built in a traditional way in terms of the screenwriting. He wanted everything to feel kind of immediate and unpredictable. And I really appreciated hearing him talk about those things because that's exactly the experience I had with the film. And I think whatever his approach is, I think it's really great in capturing things that feel like reality, which I know is something you appreciate in cinema. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I absolutely love that. I, for, for whatever reason, I didn't even realize that it was out yet. Like, so I'm, yeah. I'm going to go buy that tomorrow. And I'm, I'm not even joking around. Now, do you happen to know if the DVD version has these extra, these special features that you're talking about? I did not check. Um, but I'm just I, the DVD man. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, as you heard earlier, I, I don't even do Pokemon Go. So, I mean. Like, I thought you got a Blu-ray player. I do, but it, then it stopped working. Okay. It was graciously given to me, but I guess I'm told it was the first Blu-ray player ever released on the market. <laughs> and it has died. And I'm like, well, that's okay because I don't like Blu-rays anyway. So Well, you can buy it um, on iTunes if you prefer to do that. But. Uh, the DVD, I don't know what the price is on that, but um, the Blu-ray was sixteen ninety nine at most places that I saw. Nice. So okay, I got gotcha. you. Thank you. And uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do though, because I want to support this film. There are two things I want. 
Yep. Well, well, there are more things than that, but like okay. the, the two things that I'm hope to get actually, <laughs> just kidding, is um I would like to support this film by uh, purchasing a green room Blu-ray for one listener as a prize. Okay. Wow. Yeah, and and here is why I want to do that. I'm really excited about this At Your Mercy Picks episode, which for the listeners who don't know what that means, At Your Mercy is when the listeners send us these films, a lot of times they're film recommendations from the listeners, interestingly, and then we pick like four to go over or whatever and we review them, okay? Well, I had this idea, you know, back when we were talking about our little horror watching competition thing, I also wanted people to kind of like look at their libraries for like really odd and surprising horror films that are there. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to capture this. I, I don't think I didn't see where anybody kind of bit on this bait to do this. And that's fine. Like people don't have to do anything. I mean, if you want to chase Pikachu's. And that, then go do that. But, that, but, I, but I'm just saying, if you want to do something meaningful with your life, no, I'm just, um, what, what I like to do is I go to the library. So I went to Lehigh, Utah Library, just as an example. And I started looking through their films. And it's weird because you just don't know what horror films you're going to find in a library. I think it's very bizarre. And I have a theory on what happens, Josh, but we'll talk about that. But like, for example, I want to give you a list of just a, a few things that I found at the Lehigh Library. The the Bella Lugosi collection, okay? Um, the Cavern, which sucks. It's like the poor man's awful version of The Descent. Um, <laughs> Blood and Chocolate, which is terrible. Yep. The Boogeyman, okay? Now, those are all... Well, not Bella Lugosi, of course, but the other things are not great films necessarily, but they're the kind of weird things that you'll see at a library. But something that you will see is like Klaus Kinski's Crawl Space from 1986. Ah. That's wild to me, right? To see something like that. It's like, what is this doing here? You know, and sometimes you'll learn about horror films that you didn't even like know existed at a library. And so what I would love to have people do is if you go to your local library and just kind of check out the horror that they have, like write a list. Here's the game. If you want to win or at least enter to win a green room Blu-ray, number one, you go to your library and uh, you look at their horror films and write down some interesting things that you see and send it to us and tell us what the library is and where it is. And then um, these list of movies. And what I think would kind of be fun, Josh, is at some point in the future, because I don't know how many people are going to actually do this, <laughs> we'll pick um, movies from these library lists that, as an at-your-mercy type of episode if we see things that intrigue us, you know, such as Crawl Space. But I don't know. I think that'd be fun. And what we'll do is um, we'll keep track of everybody who sent us these at-your-mercy library picks, and uh, I'll just draw a name, and that person will win a green room blu-ray how does that sound josh sounds great to me jay i love green room i love the idea of at your mercy and the library thing is a lot of fun okay i know two of our listeners we've already mentioned on this episode kagan and david from the uk both are recommending spookies for their at your mercy uh library picks so that's one thing that's come in oh okay so so kagan says spookies and david 
Yes. Is this UK David or a different David? That's UK David, yeah. Okay. All right. Spookies. <laughs> That's awesome. Is that a kid's movie? I don't know Spookies. I don't know Spookies either, but they're both very high on it. Okay. Well, there, there we have it. Spookies. Excellent. Thank you. So, see, that wasn't hard. And you're welcome to send... You, you know, the list of the other oddities, even if it's kind of a terrible movie or whatever, like The Cavern. And, and Josh, my theory, by the way, I think what happens is, um, you know how Walmart will sell like, the, like for five bucks, they'll sell a movie when it's out in its day. You know, like, uh, yeah, I don't know, like Zombies, for example, <laughs> which I, I got to see that movie. Zombies. Anyway, um <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll sell zombies for a while and then they'll stop selling zombies altogether but at some point some poor soul who purchased zombies will just donate it to their library and then zombies ends up in somebody's library <laughs> like it's just weird how that happens anyways that's that so speaking of our little uh competition do you want to talk for a minute about the dead serious challenge yeah, because on the last episode, for those who heard it, we were still kind of hammering it out while we were we were recording, and I did manage to get the blog posted about it, and it only has one comment on it, so I'm, I'm hoping everyone has seen it, because this is big, and as you heard with Deadbox Mike's possible future entry that he teased us with, it could be a lot of fun. So I'm really excited about the Dead Serious Horror Challenge. And I just wanted to go over the rules so that um, everyone out there knows if they haven't visited the blog at horrormoviepodcast.com. So, number one, you're going to need to customize your pick. So you're going to pick a movie and a location, and that combination should excite you or freak you out in some way. Mike's was a great example. I think it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Other examples we've heard about recently are Red Cap Jack watched... Lost Boys at the Santa Cruz Boardwalk. Very cool. Um, Number two, you're going to take a short video of yourself, and I wrote either before, during, or after your challenge. But if you do it before, please be honest and go ahead and go through with uh, your viewing. We want to make sure everyone is being honest. We're on the honor system here. This is for fun, (laughs) so hopefully you're not doing it just for the prizes and being lame. We're going to have fun and do that. So record a short video of yourself. Tell us what the movie is, where you are, who you are so that we can all enjoy uh, laughing about you at a later date. That's right. Because it will be amusing. And if you do have like this horrified experience, that we, we definitely want to hear those details too. <laughs> Absolutely. And like Mike, if you know, you have a wife who doesn't necessarily want to be on camera, but you're watching hell baby while she gives birth. <laughs> Um, maybe you could find a more discreet or private way to film. I know everyone doesn't want to have their face on camera, but at least make sure we can see where you are and what the movie is. And if you want to put your face on there, we'd love to see you too. I'm going to film an example of not seeing me right away. And then later I'll do one where my, my beautiful face is gracing the video. I'm going to just do a couple of examples to throw up there so people can, Get the ball rolling, all right? Um, Three, you're going to upload your video to social media. It would be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. It could be anything, whatever you're on. But number four, you need to tag Horror Movie Podcast when possible. And then hashtag Dead Serious Horror. In fact, when you're recording your video, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind saying, I'm doing Horror Movie Podcast Dead Serious Horror Challenge because... We know we'd like to spread the word about the podcast and we hope this is a fun way that could 
potentially go viral that we can spread the word. Lastly, okay, so that is what I'm calling those first four points. I'm calling the fresh meat entry. All right. There's an <laughs> additional step, number five, which is you actually email Jay your video, horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com, and then we'll post that on our own YouTube page just to preserve this fun experience. You know, later down the road when your tweets have disappeared, we can uh, we can have those all congregated at the Horror Movie Podcast YouTube page. Love it. If, um, if you take that fifth step, you'll be entered in the final girls and boys entry, which has some additional prizes. So those prizes are everyone who completes all four of these steps and sends us or uploads your video by October 17th, 2016. There's plenty of time, but it would be cool if we got going right away. Um, will be qualified for a free digital download of a movie podcast network commentary. So we'll have hosts from around the shows here participate in a commentary of green room and it follows those are two films that i i want to uh support and get the word out about and so i thought a free digital commentary costs us nothing but our time and it's something we can give to everyone who enters Mm -hmm. nice secondly for a fresh meat entry you'll be entered in a drawing where you will win either a dvd blu-ray or digital download of the movie you watched for the challenge or your choice of one of the following HMP highly recommended movies, Bone Tomahawk, The Final Girls, Green Room, It Follows, The Visit, We Are Still Here, or The Witch. <laughs> Love it. Again, movies we're kind of trying to promote out there that we're, that we're excited about. Um, if you go ahead and do that last final step of sending us your video, you'll qualify for the final girls and boys entry. You'll be entered in a drawing where one lucky winner will get a t-shirt that we've given away previously on an episode. So you'll be entered in this contest to win either a Camp Crystal Lake t-shirt, which was given away on our Friday the 13th franchise review, or a Stab t-shirt, which was previously given away on our Scream franchise review. One more thing. Be and safe. Then you'll also be entered to win a book. One lucky winner will have their choice of a book from either Kyle Bishop or Carl Cederholm. So that would be American Zombie Gothic, or Carl's uh, The Age of Lovecraft or something like that. That's right. And above all, you know, make sure you're being safe and make sure you're being safe toward others in this challenge. We appreciate it. Thank you. We will not accept any entries where you are putting yourself or others in harm's way. We will not promote them, talk about them with our audience. They're dead to us. We disavow (laughs) any, any entries that put you or others in in harm's way. Yeah. Yes, that's right, because we love you all. So there you have it. Thanks, Josh, for going over that. And we will link that blog post. I know that was a lot of stuff, okay? But but Josh wrote up a blog post, and we'll link it in the show notes for this episode, episode 93. It's also linked in episode 92, and you can read about it. So that'd be great. Thank you for participating. Now, let's talk a little bit about just upcoming shows and themes. Like, we already talked about killer clown show we're going to do in september when when 31 comes out and then our next show coming up um i might as well mention what's next is the ghostbuster versus episode right josh yeah i mean you know we've got the new ghostbusters movie coming out this seems like a great opportunity to just talk about those movies and it'll be timely and and fun and mm-hmm. a little bit some a little something different 
for us talking about those types of films. So. That's right. That's right. And then these are things that we have in the near future that are definitely on the docket, just so you know. And I just want people to know that we're keeping track of this stuff. So PG-13 horror movies. That's something that we really want to talk about. People have been saying, okay, well, let's get into this. Let's throw down and put this out there. So we are going to do that. We, we've accepted the challenge. We're also going to talk about kids' horror movies, okay? Mm-hmm. One that I'm very excited about, Josh, and this may actually be a two-parter, is horror documentaries. That is one of your specialities, Joshua, and I can't wait to do cool. that. So I'm, I'm very eager for that. I'm also eager for the 80s slashers-themed episode. And Josh, yep. I'm kind of leaning toward that being our October madness, because you know how the month of Halloween, we usually do something really big. Just yeah. saying. I'm just... You know, no, I, I agree. I think rather than a franchise review this year, if we covered 80s slashers mm-hmm. for two episodes and then the kids um, horror for an episode, that would be a really good Halloween content. I okay, think. there you have it. And, and I'm just pulling up my calendar real quick just so I'm sorry about that. Now, I'm looking at October. It looks like they're like four weeks in October. Okay, so yeah, 280 slashers, kid content, and we'll probably do a Frankensteinian episode in there so I don't lose my mind, right? Because <laughs> for whatever reason, it's easier for me to prepare Frankensteinian ones because they're so random, I think. And Dr. Shock, for a long time, he's been wanting to talk about Aussie horror, which I think will be fun because I know we got some listeners who want to hear that too. Yeah, I mean, we had promised uh, Horror Olympics this summer and we have, did not necessarily deliver on that, but I think... If I don't know how much time we have left this summer, but I think it would be fun to do like uh, two countries a year, you know, like each summer cover two mm-hmm. foreign countries. I was thinking we could do the Aussie horror like we've discussed with Dave. Um, and, you know, he talked about having some Aussie horror hosts on to, to join us for that. And then I was also thinking it might be cool to bring in Peter from Retro Movie Geek and Forgotten Flicks. Yes. And do either Finnish or Swedish films with him, since those that's where he hails from. That's right, Peter. And so that would be a great uh, Horror Olympics right there. Yes, absolutely. So maybe that's something we could slip in this summer and do two entries in our Horror Olympics. That'd mm. be a lot of fun. Let's try to work that in in August then. Sounds good to me. Okay, so there you go. And um, finally, as we're wrapping up, it has come to my attention, and I'm horrified and mortified that there are people out there, I think, it's not surprising, but it is extremely disappointing. There are people out there who have not received their Horror Movie Podcast t-shirts yet. We do have a limited number left, so I want to make sure that the people who have were promised those thus far get those. And by the way, Josh, just so people know, I mean, we're, we're planning on doing the shirts the right way in the future. Josh is good at this kind of thing. I'm terrible at it. He's going to help organize and oversee it next time. Down Don't the road. be too down on yourself, Jay. I think you did a great job. They look great. People are excited about them. Sal, one of our listeners, told me he wears it every time he goes to a horror movie. He wears (laughs) his horror movie podcast t-shirt. I love you, Sal. Thank you. So I'm just deeply sorry, though, and I want to make this right. So we're going to be trying to sort that out. So we'll keep you posted. And I think that's it for episode 93 of Horror Movie Podcast. We're so glad you listened, everybody. Thanks for sitting through all of this. Josh, I'm always amazed. Like when we put out an episode like this, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go over. And then people seem <laughs> seem to like it. Like I, there was an early episode that was like eight and a half hours long. 
And one time that I was ridiculous, dude. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. And and I actually listened to it and there were some good parts in there. But for the most part, I kind of hate that episode because I'm like, that's way too long. And I, I felt really bad. So we try we try to give you good content and not subject you to just rambling like I'm doing now. But anyway, we appreciate you. So, Josh, what are your plugs for the listeners? I would just say, please check out Movie Streamcast. Uh, the other podcast to do it, MovieStreamcast.com, which is where I cover just whatever's currently streaming online. It's always one movie, and you, we usually talk some TV shows that we're streaming as well. Uh, the summer is a fun time. We can kind of go crazy and do whatever we want because a lot of the TV coverage gets sapped up in Survivor uh, during the fall season. So mm-hmm. if you hate Survivor, now's a great time to check out Movie Streamcast. That's right. <laughs> um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Icarus Arts. That is the name of my production company. You can find me also on Facebook and Instagram at Icarus Arts. And I'll try not to weird you out or creep you out if you get in <laughs> touch with me. <laughs> I love, I love that still to this day. It's so funny. And uh, for the, it hurts my soul, and I, I and I have a hard time functioning every time I think about it. Well, that's exactly how I feel about these damn t-shirts. But um, <laughs> anyways, we love you all. Please check out Movie Podcast Weekly. We are actually about to hit two hundred episodes, yeah. which, which, which is insane. And um. Josh is invited to visit on that show. I don't know if he's going to be able to with his schedule, but I hope so. Hope That'll he can be fun. at least pop in. But anyway, check out. I am leaving the country actually very soon for a short <laughs> time. So I'll have to talk with you about that in our scheduling as well. Okay. Yeah, that's moviepodcastweekly.com. And I'm wincing about Josh leaving the country. But anyways, <laughs> we love your comments. So please get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. You can leave a comment in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. You can hear all of our past episodes, including our back archives of the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis, where, by the way, um, I believe it is the weekly Horror Movie Podcast. We actually review Crawl Space, the film I mentioned earlier, just so you know, that's on there. And that you can find those archives at horrormoviepodcast.com you can subscribe to this show free in iTunes thank you for all the reviews I believe we are at 100 reviews and that is wonderful and out of 100 reviews we got 5 stars which is the most you can get 98 out of 100 people gave us 5 stars and the other 2 people gave us 4 stars so I think that's wonderful I'm very proud of that and thank you so much we're on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast and I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song you can find Fred's music at FrederickIngram.com that'll be linked in the show notes for this episode and I think that's it for episode 93 we thank you for listening and join us again friday after next for horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror